I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. Welcome to School of Everything Else. Rings of Power, Season 1. My brother gave his life hunting the enemy. His task is now mine. Speak your truth. Stand with me. Ours was no chance meeting. Not fate. Nor destiny. Ours was the work of something greater. Each of us. Every one must decide who we shall be. I am not the hero you seek. Whatever it was you did, be free of it. One day this will be your kingdom. Raise your sail and then let go. Choose not the path of fear. That of faith. One thing we can do, better than any creature in all Middle Earth, we stay true to each other with our hearts even bigger in our feet. We can survive this. Wait! No! We keep moving! Why do you keep fighting? There is a tempest in me! You have fought long enough, Galadriel. Put up your sword. Without it, what am I to be? We return to Tolkien for the first time since our epilogue show, looking back on what is widely regarded as a disappointing Hobbit trilogy in 2016. It's worth noting that of the three productions, Willow likes the Hobbit films the best, so they must have done something right. Tonight we are talking about the first eight episodes of Amazon's wildly ambitious Rings of Power, and returning is our original travelling companion for both Weta trilogies, Chris Eason of Gameburst. Hello, Chris. Hey, Mega Farnan. Mega Farnan. As well as a fellow who's always making our show more insightful, Mr. Brendan Agnew of Synapse. Well, I'm back. <laughs> okay, <clears throat> I'm not going to affect the Gandalf voice the whole way through. <laughs> I may lapse into it. So let's talk numbers first. Showrunners J.D. Payne and Patrick McKay uncredited for Star Trek Beyond and Kong vs. Godzilla and Jungle Cruise. So, just to, just to, to, to give you an idea, <laughs> they were credited for nothing. They have been uncredited for anything. The three things they worked on, they're uncredited in. They don't have stuff under their belt. They pitched the five-season series to Amazon 
eight times with endorsement from J.J. Abrams and eventually got a $1 billion pledge that would make this the most expensive TV show ever made. If someone comes up to you and says that they want to build a tunnel from one landmass to another, but they've never built a tunnel before, would you give them a billion dollars? That, that entire, everything about the price of this show is insane because yeah. of how much is, is tangled up in like, you know, securing the rights and having mm. to purchase those. And, and the fact that Amazon was like, yeah, sure, we're going to commit to like all of this ridiculous nonsense. Yeah. It's uh, it, it is it is the ultimate example of as much as I like the show of like boy that you know it sounds about white. <laughs> <laughs> However, let me lend some perspective to that price. So much of this billion it makes up the initial outlay for season one. The, the eight episodes we've just seen cost four hundred and twenty six million American dollars. That breaks down to fifty three million dollars per episode. Remember when Firefly was deemed too expensive at a million per episode by mm, Fox? It's almost cheap by comparison. Yeah. <laughs> However, by comparison, HBO's Game of Thrones, probably the closest equivalent on our TVs in recent memory, cost roughly a hundred million dollars to produce per ten episode season, or uh, fewer than that if you're look, talking about the last season. With its per episode cost starting at around six million originally for season one and eventually rising to around 15 million per episode in season eight. So it's almost like it got worse the more expensive it got per episode. <laughs> For further comparison, the three Lord of the Rings films, and I, did, I had to do some adjusting here, it was a long time ago. They cost $94 million each. For those three films. <laughs> That's bonkers. Uh, but that was in the early 2000s, which adjusts to 158 million each in 2022 money. That's still so cheap when you look at how much like Jungle Cruise would have cost. Mm. And an adjusted grand total budget of $474 million, netting $3 billion at the box office, which adjusts to just over $5 billion in 2022 money. Meanwhile, the Hobbit movies cost 315, 250, and 300 million each. I'd imagine the disparity there is that uh, Desolation of Smaug was a movie that didn't exist, and then they had to sort of make it exist and Comb stretch it out. Combing budget from, <laughs> from either side <laughs> to make it exist. Uh, but it's a grand total of $865 million, and that adjusts, adjusts for inflation to $1.1 billion in cost. It cost a billion in 2022 money, earning an adjusted 3.8 billion at the box office making this billion dollars for five seasons sound sensible and reasonable but i think it's going to be a little bit more than that altogether but it does still since feel they've got less than half a billion left in the kitty it does still feel a bit like they went to the execs and said look this trilogy got over a billion dollars yeah this trilogy got well over a billion dollars give us a billion dollars and we can guarantee you'll get at cool. least a billion dollars back imagine how many bums on seats in cinemas and all of those box office takings this thing's gonna yeah. wait what <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't mm. <laughs> nobody knows how streaming makes money yet <laughs> because they won't tell us but I mean in terms of recent purchases by nearly trillionaires it still beats Twitter <laughs> very true <laughs> Well, I was going to say that someone paid, someone, well, considered giving Elon Musk money to buy his his massive underground um, tunnel, which is just a train. So... I've got to have my underground train. <laughs> oh, my God. 
please just let give him that money. Let him go down there and let him stay down there. <laughs> Buying Twitter, forty-four billion. Tanking an entire social media enterprise, priceless. <laughs> let let Elon stay down there with his precious. Anyway. Uh, let's talk about the actual like setup for this. As we established in our two previous series, the prospect of adapting Professor Tolkien's work for the big, big and small screen took decades of developments which fell through, and animated movies that, to put it mildly, failed to capture the grandeur of Middle Earth somewhat. <laughs> that's that's very mildly. However, where there's a whip, there's a way. Now, despite what some ardent fans of the book will tell you, adapting Lord of the Rings again, more faithfully, including all the second breakfasts, delays in action, Gandalf telling people about big events and dramatic discussions after they have happened. I had a big discussion with Saruman. It was very dramatic, let me assure <laughs> Just you. Just take my word for it. It was, it was really exciting. No, he can't be in the book. <laughs> but rather than experiencing them, like that would be more accurate to the book. Uh, it, however, it would not necessarily make for gripping long-form television. I have heard people talking about, oh, they'll readapt it someday, and, and they will. Almost certainly they will. And we'll get two episodes on Tom Bombadil, and Arwen will be switched to Glorfindel. But we don't need to see every second breakfast, and the films are as perfect a widely accessible version of this saga as anyone could ever wish for. Like, you could, you could imagine a differently focused saga. You could imagine a saga that came out now rather than back then, but I don't think you could imagine a saga that would just hit just right just then that wasn't that. Yeah. And you know how rarely I say, use the word perfect. That doesn't mean that they're perfect all the way through, and there's a hell of a lot of stuff that needed readjusting for modern age, but uh, we'll get to that soon. But they were perfect for their time. Meanwhile, the resounding complaint about The Hobbit is that the book... The source book was very slim and light, and stretching it to encompass seven hours in three sections, even allowing for what Weta were granted the privilege of addressing in the appendices by the Tolkien estate... There will be no Blue Wizards. You will not mention the Blue <laughs> Wizards. ...did not make for as satisfying a cinematic trilogy. And again, I'm think, I think I'm putting it mildly, although, once again, the Hobbit trilogy was Willow's favourite. I, I said, OK, so if you're going to rank these three and... The, they went The Hobbit straight away. I was like, not even going to think about that. <laughs> Some folks have speculated that the equivalent of Middle-earth's Old Testament, the Silmarillion, could provide for an engaging adaptation. Some folks have said, make it animated. And with the book just sitting there, waiting to be capitalised upon, I would expect that, once again, much like the Lord of the Rings re-adaptation, to happen someday. But it's a very lofty and detached mythology, taking place over an astonishing amount of time, and providing a reading experience between a Norse saga and a song. And in, in other words, it will be the most challenging of all J.R.R.'s works to adapt. An attempt to tackle that would be to illuminate the First Age, just as The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings covered the Third Age. Rings of Power comes in between. Set thousands of years before the War of the Ring, the series is based on J.R.R. Tolkien's History of Middle-earth. It begins during the time of relative peace and it covers all, this is from Wikipedia, covers all the major events of Middle-earth's Second Age. The forging of the Rings of Power, the rise of the Dark Lord Sauron, the fall of the island kingdom of Numenor, and the last alliance between elves and men, who are notable by their absence. These events take place over thousands of years in Tolkien's 
Ryan's original stories, but are condensed for the series and will seemingly take place over just a few years. And what I mean by notable by their absence is, as I said to Sharon as uh, we finished our second viewing today, we've got nine kings of men to find at this stage. <laughs> Where the fuck are they? Yep. Amazon yeah. will spend... Angmar, one assumes. At least one of them <laughs> yeah. is. Everyone over to Angmar. We'll have a slumber party for kings. <laughs> Amazon will spend five years and billions of dollars fleshing out what Fran Walsh and Philippa Boyens managed to distill into seven and a half minutes of prologue for The Fellowship of the Ring, spoken to us by Galadriel, who is maybe the most significant heroic character here in play. So as it's early days for this show and they've already started shooting season two, we aren't aiming for a definitive take tonight. This is effectively first impressions, how this was created, and what we think is strong, what might need some work. Clearly plenty of these events and characters have been dreamed up by the show's creators to dramatize the established lore. So we can just begin with the, the general kind of look and sound and the design of this thing. Like, how did you feel while you when you started watching it? The, the thing I liked about this series the most is being able to see more of Middle Earth and Middle Earth that we've never seen before, even like you know in any adaptation, even like not the uh, the animated stuff. Because so starting with Valinor is like the is the perfect intro. You've never seen that. Mm -hmm. It's only been in uh, you know paintings and illustrations. And also you get to see elven children, which is, again, never before. Yeah. Like, like, in the Lord of the Rings films, everyone is old. All the elves are old. There's no no young elves at all, except for Arwen, but everyone else. And so just, just to see that is, like, all of the stuff is, like, in keeping with the sort of design aesthetics of the films. Like, there's they could have gone completely, like, opposite in terms of, like, architecture and... Um, clothes and armor and, and weapons and stuff and i'm very glad they didn't because i then obviously the films are my touchstone for lord of the rings and i'm glad that this you know if because this is obviously thousands of years before the films it's it's nice that it is in keeping enough that it you know you can explain it away as being oh that's thousands of years ago where they had different you know different style and, and have different um you know ideas of, of what they wanted it's not as wildly different of a design uh, swerve as, say, the Star Wars prequels, where everything yeah. suddenly looks like it's uh, shiny and chrome and from the fifties. Yeah, or the, I say, or the or Del Toro's Hobbit would have been if he'd actually done it. Yeah, I think I really appreciated that as well. The consistency of design, not in the sense that, hooray, you're being true to the thing that I love, but the thing that really made the Weta movies feel like they were building on mythology and existing history was utilising the illustrations of Alan Lee and John, John Howe and the fact that their imagery was already quite firmly fixed in mm. people's heads mm. as this is what yeah. Middle Earth looks like even though people may not have consciously been aware of that and the, Lord, the original Lord of the Rings trilogy was so huge that regardless of how to your heart you've taken it, it seeped it has, into yeah, popular consciousness enough that when you see that on screen and it looks consistent with that, it feels like it's building into an existing world mm. rather than going back to the drawing board and starting from scratch and having to build an entire mythology from 
the ground up. To effectively paper over what has already come before, you're ice skating uphill. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And even even because everyone's brain will resist it, even if they don't like those Lord of the Rings films. Yeah, even even Tolkien didn't start from nothing. He wanted to build a mythology for. Britain that he felt was lacking, but he utilised elements of British mythology that were already there. (laughs) (laughs) Or had been stolen from other cultures, as we are wont to do. Well, indeed, but a lot of it was sort of that underpinning of of Arthurian mythology and the the Irish fae and that (laughs) kind of thing. Continue. Well, one of the other things that I think really cements this, this series' place in, like, basically carving out an identity rather than just trying to you know play the hits is it's capturing the the like sort of general sweep of their designs like you see sauron you see the fell beasts but then what it does is it takes this almost post-apocalyptic version of middle earth that we see in the lord of the rings films where there's like two functioning kingdoms everything's in ruins most of the elves are gone and you get to see like okay a lot of a lot of Middle Earth, you know, people are still kind of like in in small huts and things, and the hobbits are very, you know, very primitive. But then you also have places like Numenor, where you get to see like, oh, okay, this is basically Atlantis, and you can see the bones of Minas Tirith in Numenor's architectural design. Like there is, yeah. uh, there, there's almost a, an exact echo to you know the uh, the citadel, uh, you know, in, the in White Tower of Exhalion. Yeah, with that yeah. little like that little like promontory that Denethor falls off of in Turn of the King, you see like basically the 1.0 version of that, and they do that all over the series so that it doesn't just it's like okay this is Middle Earth, but it's also like this is a Middle Earth you've never seen before. This mm-hmm. is Middle Earth back when it was still like when it was still full of its original life and back before it had been transformed by so many things. Like it's still a post-war sort of thing, but it hasn't. Like the the wars of Middle Earth haven't ground down the civilizations in it yet. Mm. Yeah, especially I mean, obviously Mordor is the obviously epitome of that. When you start off not knowing that that's just like the Southlands, you don't know that oh that's actually going to be Mordor one day. Mm. And then especially when the the Hobbits migration, they go through places like the Grey Marshes as it is now. It's like oh that's the Dead Marshes in a couple of thousand years because of you know the Last Alliance, which is going to happen at some point soon um so definitely yeah that that it yeah it's it's yeah it's a shade showing basically the same world but from the past obviously and it's just showing how how as you said how things like some of the design aesthetics came to be from what they are in this mm-hmm. to what they they came to be in in the, the third age which is definitely interesting especially as as like numenor you can see the yeah as you said the gondorian uh, parallels, but then there's also more elven architecture in there to to acknowledge the fact that obviously the Elros was it was half elven, so you've got that influence as well. Uh, yeah, just uh, for folks at home uh, who are less thoroughly read up on Tolkien because it's exhausting having even just attempting this. That's why we have Chris here. Everyone in he knows uh, the stuff we don't. <laughs> uh, everyone in Numenor is descended at least in part from Elrond's unseen brother who decided to be mortal. Is that correct? Elros. Yeah, uh, yeah uh, Elrond is half elven, though he looks pretty elven to me. That kind of makes uh, Aragorn his great, 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 many times great grandnephew. Marry my daughter. But it's royalty, so go for it. 
<laughs> I was going to say that they're, they're probably less related than a lot of existing royalty, that's so that's fine. But the landscape is so young and untouched and primordial almost. It, it, this doesn't feel like uh, Middle Earth so much because I'm used to a Middle Earth covered in the ruins of this. If that makes sense. Yeah, and the, the forests in particular, um, because the perspective on the woods that we're used to seeing hmm. is from the Hobbit's eye view. Yeah. And they do have, while it's in keeping with the landscape, they do have buildings of their own. Hmm. And the Harfoots, who are their equivalent in this, don't have that. Everything that they have, they carry, and hmm. they interact with the landscape in a very different way. I believe, I could be wrong on this one, that uh, at the beginning of episode one, the Ents began an Ent moot, and at the end of the last episode of season five, we'll get the minutes of that. Because they'll just have finished. <laughs> so, that, that is, I did love seeing an Ent child. That was like, it's like, yes. We get to see an Ent child, finally. When did we say, I, oh, hang on. I think I know. Hang on, it's, when was this? It's, I think it's episode one, it's episode one, I think I can't. I think it's is there like, like a little the, tree dude running around? No, there's. No, I I have my notes. I'll try and search where episode it was. <laughs> Ents don't run. There was so a lot like... of stuff crammed yeah. in there. A huge amount of detail. Episode one. I think it's when the um the star falls and it you sort of see through like different perspectives and one of them are two ants and then a small ant child. Oh. Nice. So assuming assuming that's an ant and an ant wife and a child. But got it. Uh, the ent wives that we uh, have never seen before because yes. they wandered off. So we may, we, we may yet, e Mr. Frodo. We may yet. At the, every, I think at the end of every episode, it has like they say they have an ent unit. So that was <laughs> a big thing. Co music. Okay. Now you know you you said they're not just playing the hits. I feel there is a slight amount of push pull about this series, at least so far, where they want to do their own thing but they do also want to nod and wink and reference and sometimes philosophically draw from the very well-known moments in Lord of the Rings. So, like, we, we watched the last two episodes today and the penultimate one, I believe, that's where Galadriel and... What's the boy's name? Theo? Uh, Theo. Yeah. Galadriel and Theo are hiding in the forest under the bower of a tree and uh, some yeah. orcs come creeping around... It very much positioned and shot like uh, the uh, hobbits hiding um, from the ringwraith in Fellowship and the scene where Galadriel gallops towards I don't know where she's galloping towards I can't keep track of these places um, it's, 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 <laughs> either, it's either the Hall of Law or Eregion um, depending on which episode it was in but it's uh, near the end so uh, it's Eregion uh, Eregion okay which is Rivendell folks uh it's is not. when it's not, but it's the, it's it's not. the equivalent. It's, it's, it's the precursor. It's the, the precursor to yeah. it's the the, bit, the 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 place they had before it got destroyed. <laughs> I've got to translate this stuff for people for the casuals. But uh, it's it honestly, this is this is nerdery, and no one is expected to keep up, especially not me. Anyway. <laughs> As she's galloping there, it is very much that shot of, of uh, Gandalf approaching Minas Tirith, with, where it suddenly cuts to Bel Bendel Maestro. <laughs> and it's got that same kind of roving camera. They're trying to make you go, oh, this feels familiar somehow. And it's, uh, I love that. And with the music, the, the, the main theme composed by uh, the, the wonderful Howard Shaw, and then Bear McCreary on the rest of it, I, it makes perfect sense to cast Bear McCreary as composer. 
the idea of Paul Howard Shaw being told, okay, you know you did that opera about 22 20 years, years ago. 20 years ago, <laughs> and it was, it was the greatest score a film or film series has ever had, ever. Could you do that again, but over 62 hours, please? Lots of incidental music. Yeah, loads it's the of the same, but not exactly the yeah. same. Uh, and, and what McCreary seems to have done is to just sort of add little inflections, and, and especially when they're drawing from different British and Scots and Irish and Welsh cultures and the Celtic and the Gaelic, that we've got music that sounds a little bit like what we've already had. But I realised that when we finally get to see the One Ring, there is not a chance in Mordor that the music is not going to go. And if it doesn't, everyone will ask why. And as soon as they do that, it'll be, well, why didn't you put the Hobbit theme in earlier? And why didn't you put Rohan in as soon as the folks from the Southland get to enough of a prairie and go, oh, horses, now there's a thought. Um, Or or just... It feels like just a couple of inflections here and there, like when when they're uh, entering um, Numenor. If it had just been just a little, and then the 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 music goes elsewhere, but it just gives you just a little bit of that. I feel like they're going to do that as we go later on, because like if you're doing it visually, why not do it melodically? Yeah, I think it probably would be a bit too on the nose when the because the um, architecture isn't like a direct. I mean, it is a direct. I mean, yeah, as Brendan said, the the sort of prow of the ship in in Numenor is exactly mm. the same as the one in Minas Tirith. But I think it's. I think it, I don't. I don't know if maybe Bear McCreary would think that was a bit too. I don't know, limiting for him, or just a bit too on the nose. Okay. And I. I mean, I. I think it would. I mean, I can. I can see the point of doing it for the one ring because that's the same object, but you know Numenor are effectively Gondor, but they are a very different culture mm, Okay. Um, at this point, and... It's fuck. Um, but again, the... What I feel is, I, I'm, I've, we've come away from seeing it the second time. I can hum you the theme tune, but I couldn't really hum you anything else. Even the uh, the Harfoots theme. There, there was something about those refrains that just stayed with you. And it feels like even though it would be cheap and maybe limiting... There is something to be said for just weaving a few of those in, or alternatively, coming up with music that you just cannot get out of your head. Like uh, Bear McCreary himself managed it with Battlestar Galactica, just several pieces of music that will just stick with me. So I'm sure it will happen. You know, coming out of The Hobbit, it's by no means the match of Lord of the Rings, but I could hum you the... That's exactly what I was humming as well. Of Town. Or I could... Like, there's a lot in there that Howard Shaw made, and we still haven't done a Sound of Gonzo just for the Hobbit films. I feel like we should. But Only so I get to listen to uh, yeah. Richard Armitage singing. Again. singing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> However, the uh, ultimately what Howard Shaw did was bypass the part of your brain that thinks logically and go straight to your emotions. And Bear McCreary can absolutely do that. Like the um, the themes t- uh, to uh, Ten Cloverfield Lane are. The, just that core theme is just death. It's it, he can totally do that stuff. 
But it's almost too huge to even ask of one composer to be able to do this. Anyway, that's, that's all. I just wanted to, to, to speak on music. It's, it's, it's great so far, but it's going to be really, really hard to match up to Transcendent. Yeah, I, th- I think the problem it has it has some themes. They just uh, they're not as connective as or like the, the Lord of the Rings ones were, where they sort of flowed into other things, mm. or and it just uh, yeah, it just doesn't have doesn't have that quite yeah hummability. Mm. I've uh, I mean I, I took but. it to heart insofar as when when doing my audio dramas, when I have not only a culture, I can keep going back to the same musical style. Sometimes when there's a yeah. theme that links between books that are completely disparate cultures, but there's this theme that they share that I'm ref- that I'm sort of conjuring back up again. Just adding a little music which connects this thing to that thing, uh, which absolutely got from, uh, you know, observing how Howard Shaw um, wove those compo- compositions. And even though it's, you know, an eclectic mix of many, many different composers who've never met before, but... Um, I love the idea of, of those flavors abiding. And one of the biggest complaints about the MCU is they haven't retained consistent themes apart from Captain America and the Avengers. And that's to its detriment. Oh, and Spider-Man. I would argue like maybe Black Panther after Wakanda Forever, but that's like a weird, you know, because of the whole situation with T'Challa and how much yeah. that was his theme. But yeah. one, one of the things I think that plays into Rings of Power is that... Um, I so much of like Lord of the Rings is like how concentrated it is. Like every moment is is just like m- almost machined for maximum impact, and that really is is present in the music and what as well. And like Howard Shore had like you know all this lead time to just nail everything, mm-hmm. and we're looking at like eight hours of like okay, how do you how do you like spread that kind of like musical impact from you know, three hours to eight hours, you know, or, you know, is, is the jam going to get a bit thin and, you know, how do you deal with that? And one of the things I think might be an effective way to approach it is to like, maybe look at how Howard Shore used the hero instruments in those themes and use those instruments, like not to use the same theme, but in the same big way, like the pipes for the hobbits or the, um, the, the violin and Rohan, the horns for Gondor and like, just, you know, try and focus on those and, as opposed to just like, oh, oh, oh it's, it's, it's time for it's time for the, you know, da, 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 da. Mm. which, you know, we definitely all want to hear, but th- that's you, you don't want to just do the prequel trilogy sort of thing, which yeah. is the like the big like pitfall to avoid. Yeah. I mean, actually, on, on, on that note, uh, Wakanda doesn't so much have a theme. It has a series of instruments. So as soon as you hear sort of vocal choral stuff going, chop, 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 you're like, oh shit, Black Panther's turning up. And if you uh, hear the harpsichord, that's Doctor Strange. He's about to, to, to appear. They uh, And had Danny Elfman given even two shits, he'd have put a lot of harpsichord in the uh, Multiverse of Madness score, but he didn't. So, um, <laughs> moving forwards... I have been avoiding responses to this like bubonic plague and indeed COVID, which I actually was tested in terms of, uh, you know, can you in fact avoid a plague like a plague? Turns out you can. But um, I've I've been avoiding feedback on this. I don't want to, I haven't been wanting to hear what people have said about this, positive or negative, um, just so that I could focus on my take on this so that we could sort of bring this forwards. However, now that we're actually here, 
do you folks know more about you know what people have uh, have been declaring online? Because you know, I, I shun Twitter like an Amish with a hairdryer. Uh, unfortunately, yes. But um, I, I mean, I, I know this was, it's been review bombed because of, because it's gone woke. But um, mm. even though it has women and people of color in, that's all. That was always going to happen because you know. The, the 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 world is like piece of the world at the moment. Mm. I mean, um, yeah, we can assume that there would be people who actually don't really care about Lord of the Rings at all, yeah. but will take any opportunity to be thoroughly shitty to women and people of colour. So, for example, after the Bayonetta fracas kicked off, uh, all the people who jumped on Jennifer Hale's ass to uh, berate her for taking a job. Uh, it wasn't really because they loved Bayonetta all that much. It was like, we get to be absolutely shitty to a woman. Well, my day just got a whole lot better. Yeah. Uh, so, um, what what good faith arguments have you heard that are negative, if that makes any sense? Like, from people who aren't insane and wretched. Well, I mean, yeah, it's quite, I mean, quite, I've been trying to focus on the, yeah, the, you know, reviews of people, or, you know, comments of people that actually have an interest in Lord of the Rings to start with. Yeah. Um, and the, the main, I mean, the main criticisms are, you know, some of the writing isn't the best, shall we say. Mm-hmm. Um, and I definitely heard about, you know, like it, it falls into a certain type of fantasy writing that people like Ursula, Ursula Le Guin said was, you know, not, you know, they're trying to go for a fantasy conversation, but mm-hmm. it just doesn't, you know, it, it sounds like a fantasy conversation, not an actual conversation. That, that was, and, you know, pacing has been a bit of a problem I mean, it's not the, you know the best pace some of it is very slow some of it oh, is hell no, yeah. I actually uh, I, I got quite sleepy at some points in the around about the middle section because it, it felt a little padded and a little like we were running on the spot and I was like it's not going to get to like the last episode and then they'll make a bunch of rings all in that last 20 minutes oh, of the last no. time. oh, oh they, well, that's, that's exactly okay, cool. what's going to happen <laughs> yeah, as I said to you today I think a lot of those issues are to do with the format and it's very difficult to escape that when you're looking at TV Mm. and episodic TV at that. And by that, I mean something that's coming out an episode per week for a a protracted period of time rather than a, we just dropped 12 episodes, Mm. have fun. Also, it's still pacier than Tolkien's writing. Um, oh, wait. oh yes, it is. I mean, if I was trying to read it, uh, Lord of the Rings to you verbatim right now, I'd get sleepy before we even left the Shire. Yeah, it's. I mean, well, it's definitely. I mean, obviously, they ever did a Silmarillion thing, and they did it to 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 scope or to to the right um, pace. It would be like fifty seasons or something just mm. to get past Ugh. like the first half. Um, so it's, it's mainly. It's quite a lot of it is just. It's mainly focused on how it's presented rather than what is presented. Yeah. Um, okay. And but there are some criticisms about. I mean, criticisms I have are about the timeline of everything. So I I was. When it was going on, I read things. People saying, "Oh, you know, they've condensed things," which is like, you know, they, you know, that has to happen because otherwise, it's going to be, it's the the cast keep aging out, and they're like, we need a bunch of new people because we've now gone well, hundreds of years from where we began. Well, the problem is this, this half, you know, the, this time period is like two thousand years. You've yeah. got to do that in. The problem is, but um, Isildur's the, there, and the whole thing has to happen in this boy's life yeah. lifetime. Yeah. The problem is also yeah I mean that that I mean that is actually I don't really find that as a problem. The problem I find is things that are not happening in sequence, so things uh, are now completely broken. Okay, actually, like, to- Tolkien fan, uh, let us know what what's uh, what's what was played out of sequence. Well, um, so the 
so the, the the 16 rings of power you know that are given to the men and the the dwarves are supposed to be constructed in second age 1500 uh-huh. then the elven rings are supposed to be 1590 uh-huh. um and then, then so the dudes get, get them first then 90 oh is it possible well, hang on is it possible that Sauron's already gotten the dudes a bunch of rings no because nope. no because um he he te- basically helps the elven smiths of Oregon mm. how to make got, uh, how to make magic rings mm-hmm. so the problem is so the, the humans aren't capable of do- I assumed that the dwarves would be able to as well because otherwise you'd then have to go back to the elves and say could you make some for the dwarves I mean obviously there's going to be egg I on mean, both of our faces when it turns out completely different again the dwarves probably could but they don't make these ones mm, okay um, and the, the point is that Sauron is supposed to be um, involved in all of the rings uh, constructions apart from the three elven ones and that's why he can control them that's why he goes and, I'm leaving yeah. at that point and so the problem is there's now 16 rings that he's not going to have a hand in I have no idea what they're going to do about that because they're supposed to be all about Anna, you know his elven form of Anatar which uh, so, he's so supposed they're to all be... supposed to be made before the, the yeah. people of Middle Earth have figured out that he's Sauron mm. yeah so that's and the, the argument the show Sauron the Deceiver about... it's not a great name if you're uh, <laughs> trying to get people to trust you ah Sauron the Deceiver's here he's got yeah. some advice so they, they did, the showrunners didn't put Anatar in as a character because they said that all people would know who he is. It's like, well, that's adaptations. That's what happens. <laughs> also, um, <laughs> they thought everyone was him anyway. Yeah, the Leo DiCaprio in uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood meme where he's just <coughs> pointing at the screen. Someone made a meme of that where it's like, someone turns up in Wings of Power. Sauron, Sauron, definitely Sauron. <laughs> Yes, yeah, so I, so I don't. I don't mind how they sort of revealed who Sauron was. It's just that they should have done it next series, and they should have like made the other rings. Because at the moment, you know, they can't like bring another character back to like, oh, here's how you make ring, more magic rings. And oh, by the way, he's Sauron as well. He could be a master okay. of disguise. This little short dwarf guy turns up, and uh, yeah, he's and- like, ah, what you need to make is some rings. <laughs> I'm trying all the the peoples of Middle Earth mm. one at a time to see which one fits best. Ents, yeah. you need to make some. Don't be hasty. <laughs> oh, <for fuck's> uh, <laughs> Brendan, you will get a word in Edgeways, I swear. Yes, I th- that that is a big problem. And then Muriel is born in thirty one seventeen second age. Wow. So, J.R.R. Yeah. R. R. Tolkien wrote about a woman, and then yeah. there was more than a sentence. Oh, yeah, unless well, it was just her date of birth. <laughs> I don't know if there's one. Well, there, well, there was because she get the, the, you know, she's royalty, so she gets a. Um, so the problem is that she was born, yeah, over fifteen hundred years after the current time period. So, but then nice. she's, I mean, again, that doesn't really matter because she doesn't really have anything to do with the rings of power. Mm. You know, I don't know. I know what they're going to do. I know what they have to do yeah. because the established laws. I have no idea how they're going to do it because some of it doesn't work anymore, mm. and some of it has already happened, but they're not happened yet. And then might not actually happen. So, well, it feels like the answer is in the question. In that, um, I'm, I'm, I'm sure there are already out there videos that sort of explain what the One Ring does. And uh, what do they refer to as the the unseen world or the world, the hidden world? Yeah, the, yeah. the unseen. The unseen world. Um, there'll be lots of sort of right. There's the unseen world. This is a dimension where the, um, the ring wraiths live, and we've seen them in Weathertop, and they look like this. And da da da. da. And there'll be a lot of dwelling on what the exact physical mechanics are of the rings. But as I said to Sharon, it feels like barking up the wrong tree because it's every tree in the forest. It's it's elven, ergo, it's 
literal and real, but it's also entirely symbolic. So if we take the show as entirely symbolic, but also literal and real, existing as kind of a Schrodinger's second age, it's kind of telling us the saga in a version of events that didn't actually happen in that way, but roughly happened like that. All, all tales deserve a little embellishment. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, if, if we're if we're you know echoing Gandalf, like th- there there is a major character that arrives oh, in this no. show that does not come to Middle Earth for a while, uh, yeah. like. It, but on the other hand, the a lot of the things that the show's doing is it, for for all that there are like pacing issues because like you know that that middle part seems a little bit like oh, okay we're we're taking our time and then those last two or three episodes are oh we're sprinting now. Um, mm. Like there, there are still like the way it's using the characters is for all the the pacing issues. Like they'll hit these these really potent dramatic beats, and it's like oh, that's why you decided to use that character so you could do like those two or three things that mm. just absolutely smashed. So like at, at this point, it's it's kind of you know there there are some things where I'm like yeah no that didn't like the whole thing about Durin like. The, every all the dwarven kings are called Durin. It's like no, this is like a reincarnation thing. But on the other hand, we're getting this cool like father son thing. So like you know whatever. Um, the 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 way they're they're kind of like looking at this is is like you said. It's it's a little bit more like what if we looked at the Bible and tried to humanize it, you know, and, and tried to say like you know what if what if we're looking at all this stuff and and some of it's metaphor and we treat some of it as metaphor, but then we also treat people literally falling from the sky as that. So mm. it's this weird kind of like balancing act adaptation and we're not going to know how effective it is until it's run its course, mm. but you know as as a you know as a eight episode sort of thing where we get to some rings of power like there's at least an impressive amount of handling on this big old cast of characters for people who have never done a show like this before. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. so much weight put on the shoulders of these uh, the showrunners who have never run a show, let alone the biggest show that's ever been made, with the, the weight of expectation. Because, like, to the general public, they're not thinking, I need this to be faithful to, you know, the, the, the law that I know. Because most people don't really know much more than what Galadriel said in Fellowship, which they haven't watched, admittedly, for about eight years. But they wouldn't even know it's been eight years, because the average person doesn't care. But what they would do is go, I like the Lord of the Rings, eh, Hobbit films, I didn't see the last one, but... You know, I would like to be back in this world again. It's a little tame without all of the blood tits rape of uh, Game of Thrones, but, um, but but you know, there's there's characters in there, and it sort of seems familiar enough. I don't know what kind of numbers this would get. I feel like there'd be a, a pretty sizable drop-off when folks realized that it was high fantasy, which for quite a while now I've theorized it's really hard to sell the general public high fantasy now, quote-unquote, uh, the the stuff with the elves and the dwarves and the just playing it straight because just playing it straight kind of it didn't even really work in the 60s that people were, were sort of fans of the hobbit in a slightly ironic way and and you know sort of like frodo lives badges and things like that it there's an earnestness about it which is 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 inherently old fashioned and definitely now, where everything has to be done cocking a snook all the time or showing how edgy it is. I think well, I think this does help that it doesn't do the sort of elves that are in the Lord of the Rings films. Mm-hmm. Um, it does 
um, you know, sort of Cheryl saying about as in the, background the, models who stand there looking fucking gorgeous <laughs> but not really saying anything. <laughs> but but I mean, well, the, the fact that in the films all of the all of the elves have long hair, mm-hmm. like no one has short hair. But then in you know the illustrations for years around the films, they have some have long hair, some have short hair, like mm-hmm. straight curly. Um, so they they are you know and and there's. The only, well, the only elf that acts like Lord of the Rings elf is um, Gil-galad, but then he's a pompous high king, so he has to act like that. Mm. Um, but like Elrond, he's just—he's a pixie. He's not an elf, <laughs> <laughs> especially with the hairstyle mm. and the clothes. And so I think that does help that they're not the boring elf—you know, perceived as boring elves in the fil- in like the, the rest of like popular culture, because everyone copied Lord of the Rings when it came out. Mm. You know, he is different enough that I think it might be more interesting to someone than you know just you know elves that are just mystical and have no facial expressions and just you know know everything because they're they're you know thousands of years old and are always right basically i'm going yeah, to allow that interesting <laughs> they they decided to make the elves assholes instead of aliens which is just a way yeah. it's just a way more engaging sort of like milieu and it sort of makes sense because you've got this immortal race of like oh yes we know we were we we are here because of literal gods you know going and going to war to protect this land and we know better and you get to have the the thing of like yes there is like legitimate incredibly infective corrupting evil but also these you know some of these people are really being fucking dumb about it (laughs) and and so you get to have like a bit of you don't have Game of Thrones levels of no one's good and no one's bad, which means everyone's the worst. But <laughs> you do get to have a little bit of more of the like shades of gray that you see in Lord of the Rings, which you know people look at Lord of the Rings as high fantasy. And it's like yeah, there's that, but you also you also have things around the edges, like you know the the people who come into the Shire. You have you know things where like you've got people like genuinely being corrupted. You've got actual like. The the whole thing with like Theoden and Rohan, like in in the books, it's it's much less a clear cut. He's possessed. It's it's very much about like the slow decay and the, and the people whispering in your ear and like just wearing you down. And like you can see like little bits of that. It's like where this could go with the elves if things go poorly. And that's why like those rings being forged lands as like a threat. Of, like oh no, this this could just go and not just because like we know that Sauron's coming but just everything about the way those rings are forged it's it just feels unsettling yeah especially that yeah I mean that's why I liked the first basically the first introduction of the elves are elven children being awful and they're just like Gladwell's made this nice swan, nice swan boat and they throw rocks at it because they're just like children to children <laughs> kids are shits yeah um, and also the fact it does you know, because like the elves in the first age were awful. Like Feanor killed other elves. That does not ha- that has never happened again. And that is why the Noldor get banished from Valinor. It's like that doesn't get you know by by the third age, the ones that are left are the are the good ones, mm. and the rest have either died or left because they got bored. Not you, Elrond. You're <laughs> one of the good ones. <laughs> I think a lot of how this is presented for me, and and I'm starting to notice myself doing this more and more, and I'll probably say this and everybody will go, well, that's what you're meant to do, but it it seems relatively recent for me, is I'm getting very uh, aware of when you've got a, uh, a prequel setup, 
we know the outcomes of the decisions that these people are making. And so it's impossible for us to watch the dots get joined, not knowing what the overall view is going to be, what yeah. the overall picture is going to look like. We know Anakin's going to end and up so, as, as Darth Vader. Yeah, and so it can become a case of, well, I don't care how good a person you think you're being and how much you're dealing with the information that is available to you at the time, I know the decision you're about to make is a really stupid one and it's going to lead us to a really bad place. So what it becomes, and that makes it impossible to to engage with if it's not presented in a, an enge- a, a way that feels like it's, it's worth finding out how these decisions were made as opposed to just that they were made. So what it then comes down to is how well are they shaping this character that even though I know the things they're pushing for are going to be bad choices in the end and... So, for example, the uh, we're going to open that mine and delve greedily and deeply yeah. to help yeah. the elves. and e- exactly the person I was thinking of right there was Lisa. Mm. Like, ultimately, she is such a lovely person and everything she wants is entirely for the benefit of her, her family and her people. But the... the Rather like Boromir. ...situations that she pushes for are going to get them into a hell of a lot of trouble. Yeah. But it's the way her character is crafted and the way she presents herself and the way she interacts with other people, it feels very... It feels a bit racist to say human, but it it feels like a very natural way to... It's a way of humanising fantastical races, which are always uh, supposed to be sort of an aspect of us anyway. Exactly. Or, in bad cases... uh, racist depictions of, of various races and classes and people that you don't like if yeah. you're certain but authors. What, what I mean <laughs> is that if you can do that and if you can craft those characters, then you can get around that draw, that mm. drag factor of but we know how this that is comes going to out end. of this, yeah. we know where it's going. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, it, it's, it's taking a, a very deliberate, we are trying to recontextualize the events so that when you, when you see the characters and their choices, because it's, it's far more about choices than events, which is, I think, ultimately why this ends up working. It's, it's not about how Gandalf got his hat. It's about Someone why it so-and-so <laughs> chose to do something. Uh, and with, with this, what you, like, I, I don't want to jump, like, too far forward, but when you look at the final episode and the big confrontations between Sauron and Galadriel, it completely recontextualizes moments in in movies that I don't care for, but makes them better. The, oh, the do entirely- you mean the bit where she screams and goes Marilyn Manson in uh, the uh, Battle of the Five Armies? Well, yeah, just just the fact that she is so ready to fuck his shit up, like that it, <laughs> that she is just absolutely ready to to crush him. And again, like that's not necessarily a movie I care for, but like that is a smart beat to call, mm. specifically because it's playing with a trope that you see in Lord of the Rings of like, oh, we found the lost king. Well, we, we got to get him a crown, get him a sword, get him a thing, get him that. Is it lost king? Is it got? We know what to do with lost kings. Get that. You get a kingdom. You get a kingdom. You get a kingdom. <laughs> and and it's like, oh wait, no, that was the worst thing that could have happened. Which then also is like, oh, and so like thousands of years later of course we're a little bit more hmm, okay well aragorn yeah well he might turn out okay we'll see mm. that, i mean as as much as i adore the last jedi that's how you do what 
Ryan was attempting to do with Benicio Del Toro's DJ. Like, rather than presenting us with a weird, twitchy guy who we don't think is cool at all, and we're like, well, this guy's made of pure scum, and he will betray them <laughs> at the first possible moment he gets, rather than charming us the way that Harrison Ford would do, thus being an analogue for Harrison Ford, it's like, a, I can't believe you're actually trusting this guy. And then, so I see we're supposed to not just imagine that the same scenarios are going to play out the same way each time and that we're enshrining this, uh, uh, the, the beats of this mythology might in fact be a way of keeping us running on the spot and we need to move forwards. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean to let the past die. No. But with this, it's it, it was a case of everyone could really be Sauron. And honestly, when I first saw Halbrand, I was like, okay, is that the King of the Dead? Because it really felt like like he was sort of, oh, I'm a deserter, and that's kind of my thing. I was like, well, this seems like it's very in keeping with him uh, moving forwards. And then we spent the whole eight episodes. Like, did, did anyone really suspect Halbrand was definitely Sauron the whole way through? Or? The, I, I, do, I am vaguely aware. I don't know to what extent, whether it was just a handful of tweets or whether there was a, a portion of the audience who that. reacted badly to this. But there was definitely a, a little note of, um, we've been thirsting after this guy for weeks. How <laughs> dare you make him the baddie? Yeah. Um, which just don't. <laughs> I was thirsty for the King of the Dead when he was a skeleton. History tells us there's a line in flipping Fellowship of the Ring where he says, "I suspect a servant of the enemy would, would look, look fairer, fairer and, and feel, feel fouler. fouler." What were you expecting? <laughs> well, Anatar, because we're like the, the historically the only thing we know is that a beautiful elf named Anatar came to the elves mm. and taught them how to make the rings. What my show presupposes is maybe we make someone up who did it differently well, and is a human is and reminds us but, a little bit of Aragorn, a little yeah. bit of Thorin, a little bit of Boromir. Mm, indeed, I but that I mean that a little bit of Stuart Townsend, a little dirty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you know, Charlie Vickers, good-looking guy. He mm. could be a. a, a light-powered elf. He could still lead the Skeleton League. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> I think but the, the thing is with that, I just said the thing is with that, he's, he was always going to be bad, though. Mm. He's either... If he's if he's actually a king of the South, that means he's going to become a ringwraith. Mm-hmm. Like, like, that's why I said, like, his one get-out clause is if he's the king of the dead, in which case he'll betray them now, but save the day at the very, very end yeah. in Return of the King. Mm. Well, yeah, I mean, another, just another, like, theory was that he was going to be the Witch King, which does not work at all. Mm. It's a completely wrong area of Middle-earth, but that was a... Mm. Although I do think that the uh, the one that everyone saw the first uh, shot of and went that's definitely Sauron and started pointing that guy that that guy Sauron the scary looking elf the what were they called the traveller uh, the nomad the dweller and the ascetic ascetic thank you oh uh, yeah see so, yeah, I said the traveller because they reminded me of Goza mm -hmm. uh, I think that's that's the, that's the role they take in this really yeah I think that's the witch king uh, just because they have a very witchy kingy thing going on no, obviously they're dead the, now they're, oh they're dead now they're dead they've been destroyed and Gandalf just fucking waste them yeah. but, but we, we see sorry the Istar we see in we still the haven't real... had it confirmed that Gandalf no, means I, me I, I, Jesus I, Christ I, I'll have a rant about this oh no <laughs> Okay, well, I've actually got Gandalf all the way at the end because I was going to do the half that's last because, to me, they're actually the best part of this. But um, do you want to get your Gandalf rant done now? <laughs> right. Well, if he is Gandalf, I don't know if I want to continue watching the show. Oh, my it's, God! It's, it's completely... It's like... Okay, so t we've got timeline... Okay, timeline... You know, he's supposed to get here 
a thousand in the third age, mm-hmm. which is many years in the future. Depending, I don't know how actually. Obviously, it's been. I'd say I'd but... say we were like minus eighty tops from the beginning of the third age. Oh. Can, like it's Isildur do again. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 yeah, I mean, the last series is going to be the last slides because you have to have it for the last slides. Mm-hmm. But if you know, that's not how he gets to Middle Earth. He's supposed to have a ring when he gets there because he gets it from Kierden at the Ray Havens. Mm-hmm. Um, he has a reference. He has an association with fire because of when he was a mayor in in Valinor. But that's far too on the nose. Him coming in in a bloody meteorite. I didn't realize and he was the mayor of Valinor. Yeah, all of the. All sorry, of the, sorry, Maya. All of the, it, my well, yeah. And then he's not supposed to go east. The only thing that works. Gandalf is, never goes east, for goodness' sake. <laughs> It's He's west or nothing. Um, the only thing that works, which I'm really hoping this is all just a misdirection and they're actually going to go this way, is the only thing that works is one or what is either the blue wizards and he's one of them or they've just, you know, combined them into one. Because Tolkien originally said they were going to come in the third age, but he changed his mind and he said they come in 1600, the second age, which is around about this time, because again, the rings have been made and that was 1590. Mm. And they, they are famous for going east and then nothing, you don't hear from them again. So it makes sense that, you know, this could put the Blue Wizards in one character and he, he goes west and it doesn't matter what happens because no one knows about that. Okay. And so... I'm hoping that is thing, but if it's Gandalf, cause they, but they've made it so blatant that they're trying to make it Gandalf, because, like, a, you know, it's it, every single thing he does is Gandalf, which I just hopefully don't go there. Okay, um, everything you just said, best will in the world, all power to all Tolkien fans ever. Not one member of the general public gives two shits about. Oh no! But no, they I will know, the, point the, and go, "That's Gandalf. It's Gandalf right there. Yeah. He likes hobbits." That's that's yeah. really what they're setting up here is, and I realised this while we were watching it. Sauron never went to the, uh, in this case, Harfoots, and tried to convince them to make rings because he didn't care and didn't give a shit, and they overlooked them, and that was his downfall in the end. So the hobbits never got a ring. However, with this, they get Gandalf, who is their ring. He's their kind of connection. Yeah. I love I mean, that. Yeah. All, all of it makes sense to be Gandalf because it makes sense that he likes hobbits because they're the first creatures he met and all of it makes sense I just hope it isn't <laughs> <laughs> you want it to make less emotional sense but more logical yes. sense yeah because I was I was gonna quit the series if he turned out to be Sauron because oh. that was that was why the beginning of the episode day I did not like because it like this is going there isn't it I, I I liked the 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 audacity of them going Sauron just just knowing everyone was gonna gasp they could have done that at the end of the uh, seventh episode and had everyone go <gasps> Shit! For which a is, week. Which is exactly my response. I, fuck off, that's not yeah. Sauron. <laughs> clearly that, I, even if you've written it that way, clearly that's not Sauron. But I think they probably may have, may have just sort of given themselves a break and just go, look, we'll just, we'll put the it at the beginning of episode eight, get everyone to go, oh, no, really? And then many, many minutes we later. We can't let people sit for a week on that information. <laughs> no, <laughs> They'll that, never come back again. We'll lose a Dollars. That would destroy, I think, any like Lord of the Rings forum or you know community just yeah. for people that want an excuse to like criticise this. That would have been the main criticism. Absolutely, give me a pile of goodwill and let me <laughs> set fire to it. Yeah. <laughs> 
I get. I, I, I can almost guarantee that they will hemorrhage Tolkies as we go. That like there'll be everyone's line will be different. It'll be like, I can't believe you did Glorfindel so dirty. Like Glorfindel should not be in the Second Age or whatever it is about their favorite character, Glorfindel. But it'll yeah, I mean, be different. It'll be different for I'm everyone, just- and they will loudly, publicly. You know, but express is, their disgust, and I am done. I am done with Rings of Power. Consistent, entirely consistent with every with previous adaptation they of had Tolkien. With the uh, with the uh, the Weta films originally, there were characters that were changed and adjusted, and there were lots and lots of people who were just really unhappy with the decisions that they made. Ah, but no. Ah, hmm. No, I don't. I think they were a little. Sorry, I, I just <laughs> became that late that lady going no. Maybe meme. <laughs> Fran and Pippa, when they were right, I think they probably um, were the most fast and loose with the two towers because they were trying to work out how to make a sort of a bridge between yeah. these two films. But Fellowship, while it does bring the camera to scenarios that we only hear about spoken of mm-hmm. elsewhere, is relatively faithful to the original book. Yeah, this would yeah, be I- like if Gandalf turns up to help the hobbits and it turns out he's Saruman and people are like wait what? <laughs> and it's like no 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 he's not actually Saruman turns out he's Gandalf and it's like well, why did you even say you were Saruman or rather Saruman as he should be that's just confusing <laughs> cut that line out from the theatrical <laughs> version <laughs> yeah I mean uh, yeah, I, I'm not like completely like wedded to law I don't really mind I mean, yeah, they change a lot in the films I don't really mind because it's if it, again if it works it, I'm fine with it mm. when they go a bit too far <gasps> but um, how are you going to how are you going to know whether to be done with it or not if you don't watch it all the way through to the end to see I, if it I, ultimately works? I am going to watch it all the way through. That's yeah. Phrase. I've got to do it every, t- every time. Because if I watch it, I get to criticise it. That's like the internet rule or something. That's very honest yeah. of you, Chris. Um, um, Brendan, again, we'll let you get in a word <laughs> in Phrase. Go. Uh, the, the benefit I think this show has is that in contra- in contrast to Lord of the Rings, which is this this thing that they were trying to like figure out where to plug in all of these events, like that they they did have to change a lot of stuff. But that is one of the most impressive and complete works of adaptation I've ever seen, just because like how much of the text they cram in there. And with this, they have the opposite problem because they have events that Tolkien will put in a sentence and say this happened, then a thousand years later this happened, and it's like well. Okay, so so where do we get? And so I I kind of just approached this from the beginning as like, eh, it's half billion dollar fan fiction, whatever. <laughs> um, and, and that's, that's you're not wrong. No like, lies detected. <laughs> and and like I and you know full uh, full transparency, I was fully prepared to just ignore this show because mm-hmm. I had no desire to to watch, you know just just another big expensive fantasy show because it it took a while for them to kind of like sell what they were doing and and i think the fact that they landed on okay well let's look at this and then see how we can make these cool characters just really fuck up Hmm. um the like the the fact that you know i mean if we're talking about like you know the stuff that gets changed around like you know I have big questions about Celeborn. Um, I know that that's, that's going to be a big mm. part of the, the series, but there's just like so much stuff in this with Galadriel that it's like, okay, we're just, we're, we're just making everything up here. Um, however, the fact that it's, it's looking at a, a character that 
almost feels like designed to trap stupid guy fans in the same way that she hulks um overall storyline did because galadriel spends all this time being like this badass awesome person and like the whole point of her character is she's too focused on one thing to see the obvious thing in front of her mm. and like we we get to deal with you know more complex interesting fallible sorts of uh, of of windows into these into these events but yeah at, at the end of the day i you know i i'm as much as i i love tolkien's world in the text like I, I kind of had to immediately divorce myself from, eh, this is, uh, no. <laughs> this is like, this is Bilbo telling the story of his adventure 50 years later and being like, oh yeah, and then, and then there were rock giants, because that was cool. With In terms of character studies, all we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us for this podcast. And here we have dozens of characters, many of them brand new, with analogues rather than direct frames of reference. So let's look at eight or nine of them in as much detail as is given here, utilizing them as windows into how their people are doing at this point in Middle-earth history. And I want to start with Galadriel because she's the one that made the boys cry so much. They were really upset that she was, uh, she was leading. Not boy Tolkien fans, boys who hate women getting prominence in anything so uh yeah this was an incredibly sizable role to fill i like so much so that they they brought her back for the hobbit when she had no real business being in there just because it was such a powerful uh performance the uh, first time around and they were like we, we got to be able to create anchor points for the white council morfith clark who is welsh uh, came along and uh, stepped into this role and plays her... <sighs> I feel like she's on the road to becoming someone who can embody light. And it, it feels like sort of developing that relationship with Sauron is kind of like the, the, the backstage story we never really had, but does make absolute sense. If you like, it makes emotional sense if you look at where she is now and where she will end up. So at least for this side of things, I was very satisfied with the way she pulled it off and the way her character's trajectory appears so far. Yeah, the particular line of consistency that I can see here is that Kate Blanchett's Galadriel is very powerful, but she is also isolated and exhausted. Yeah, and the way Morpheth Clark plays this version of Galadriel, this much younger, much, by elf standards, more impetuous Galadriel, is of somebody who has made such errors of judgment that she decides to spend the rest of her life paying for them and, and mm. trying to compensate for the choices that she's made. She has fire and drive and the kind of uh, like motivation that would make other elves go, whoa, whoa, steady on, <laughs> seriously. It's, she's much more uh, human in that regard then mm. like yeah. Yeah. the way that we're portrayed in in those books uh, you know they they fuck up and become somewhat obsessed mm. yeah she's got a human's inclination towards potential obsession combined with an elf's ability to live for thousands and thousands mm. of years which explains you why she's so say exhausted that's a bad combination yeah. <laughs> yeah, she also but... has this familiarity with the the true like nature and cost and insidiousness of the evil that they're dealing with that a lot of other characters don't necessarily get the the whole picture of and that that really feeds into just how not necessarily like touched 
by evil itself she is and and how that's reflected in in the lord of the rings but specifically in like how she she knows exactly how easy it would be for her to be like yep gonna be a queen gonna fuck everyone's day who stands against me going to burn the world down because i'm mad about losing my brother and and so the the fact that we see like just the the bur- like the melting of the knife feels like this huge moment of like mm. a huge turning point for her because even if we don't like even if we didn't have another rest of the series you know it's always hard to like judge you know things like this bef- you know after just one season Which but is even why if we're you just look at some light to yeah. but but if you look at just this first series and Galadriel going from like you know driving her strike team, you know digging her her dagger into the ice to pull herself to mm-hmm. the next ruin that's that's abandoned, like going oh, nice from touch. there to finally letting go of that and and letting it become something else, like letting her grief become something else, like that's a good arc. If you just have that and go straight to Fellowship of the Ring, it's like oh okay, I can see how that works. Yeah, yeah, I, th- I think that that entire episode is the last episode is that as well because when she has the vision, whatever it is, the realm created by Sauron, you know, she recognises that she's made a mistake. She's recognised that she's brought back Sauron. He was perfectly happy to be to be a, a smith on, on Numenor, hmm. but now he's actually going to take power again. And especially like that, because obviously they reference her transformation in Fellowship, where they literally say they're stronger than the foundations of the Earth. Yeah. I love and, the wording of that. I love how they tie yeah. it up with the sea, so that they, they beam back to the raft and she's looking at her reflection in the water because everything about that sea witch Galadriel has always felt like water that has become terrible as the as a storm that will just she gets that wave moment that uh Eowyn who she is more like than Galadriel in many ways uh, Eowyn had a dream about a, a great wave coming and crashing over the uh, land and if you keep on that particular path she becomes that wave. So she has to prevent herself from from taking that power. Yeah, and she, well, she, and she goes from that, directly from that, to saying we need three rings, because one is mm. corrupting, two is a, a, I can't know what she quite said, just fight. Two will divide, then, three. Yeah, and then mm. three keeps. Yeah. yeah, so that, I, so obviously, she's just come from the temptation of ruling with someone she knows is awful, is evil, and it's going to be just, you know, is in it for the power to go, we need to to democratise this amount of power because this is a lot of power for... It's too much power for two people to have, just need at least three. And again, if uh, only men got uh, rings as well, suddenly you've got men versus elves and they're divided and they're trying to uh, smash their power against each other. You give the dwarves rings as well, it's three by three. Yeah, although what you said there about he was quite happy to be a smith in Numenor, I'm willing to bet the reason for that was because he was going to try with them first. Yeah. Well, oh, oh I mean, yeah, no, that's that's very clearly a you know. Ooh, I'm just gonna work my way up to this, and then this. <laughs> yeah, I, I I said when they were on the uh, boat and he was entreating to her, and I was like, okay, the reason why you cannot listen to any of this shit is because he didn't come to you with this as an offer. You came to him having rumbled him, and he's playing for time. Mm. I really, really love all of the interactions between them. In in retrospect, it's a sixth sense moment when you go back and watch it the second time you're like yeah. ah I see what he like it's he is a consistent character mm. the only thing I would change is something that maybe the actor can't even necessarily do and that's as soon as we find out 
his actual identity, he doesn't drop the northern accent. It's <laughs> no. weird. Here in Saru, I'm talking like this. <laughs> because that is a very, if you're English, that is a very meat and potatoes, salt of the earth kind of, that is a dwarf voice, or Thorin, who was doing Boromir. It's everything about it. It's like, I've lived for 48 years, I know what I know, and I'm not going to be learning anything else. Thank you very much. <laughs> like, that doesn't work for Sauron, because he's like, I yeah. was... Like, you've got to go Shakespearean, and like, liquid oh. silver for that character. You, know, what, what, you don't, you don't want to hear him saying saying his dialogue to Sau- Saruman, and like, right, now it's time to build me an army worthy of... <laughs> what is that accent? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm going to build an army, I am. Also... That's like a horrible company. What are you doing? Can I, can I just... <laughs> You know, he could go from his northern accent to I have been awake since before the breaking of the first silence. In that time, I have had many names. And for you, what will they do when you tell them you were my ally? When you tell them that Sauron lives because of you? Can I just point out, Alex, you did get me to do a Yorkshire accent for your current yes. evil, nasty villain. Yes! And there's like, it's very specifically, you're not Maug. Oh, I see what you mean. You're, okay. Sorry, you're not Morg, you're Shrike. Shrike knows as much as Shrike knows, Shrike is not going to listen to anyone else. Gotcha, okay. We shall thread through this land of spear in teepee-dwelling Aborigines, keeping our rifles primed and ready. Then, if it is somewhere in there, amid their totem poles and voodoo heresy, I shall personally claim the Cloudbreaker for the Empire of Albion and let all who stand in our way learn the price of resistance. It's absolutely... You've just made my point rather well. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. That's, again, why people were sort of considering Adar to be Sauron, because he that, mm. that is the right sort of... Absolutely, uh, yeah presentation uh, honestly his performer i was like okay if he's not sauron whoever is sauron's gonna have to somehow match this uh the uh, the guy who plays him uh he's a he's an uruk and he's quite particular about the uh, being defined as such by um galadriel i did not really pay that much attention to their interchange back and forth the first time around the second time i mean as far as villains go he's played by joseph maul he has almost a Jason Isaacs-like quality about him, but he just seems to be sort of lamenting quietly, but not racked with pain. It's kind of like he's reflective. He's my kind of villain. Like, I don't approve of him, and he's probably going to do terrible things if he is alive. And the one thing he really does that is, is make a man stab a boy. Thankfully, that was off camera. This ain't Game of yeah. Thrones. But his performance was so smoldering. And the fact that he was only partially made up meant that you could kind of see the elf beneath that and that the, like there was still one foot in a world that Galadriel knows and that was unsettling. The performance sort of speaks to how old the character is because if he's at Moriondor he's you know one of the first elves to be turned into into orcs which would have been the first stage. Hmm. So I think he's been he's been like that for so long that he's had to become resigned to it because he doesn't he doesn't know anything else and yeah. he can't even if he wants to get back to the the light of the Valar he can't so he sort of has to has to sort of live with his lot. It's a lesson for everyone. <laughs> um, just to go uh, briefly back to Halbrand again, 
and this is kind of it, this opened up for me in his interaction with Adar when they meet him in the forest mm-hmm. and he's about to kill him mm-hmm. and Galadriel stops him. Do you know him. me? I, I, the second time I saw that I was like, do you know me? Because if you say yes, I'm stabbing you right in the throat immediately. Right. Now you see, this is the thing. Yes, there is an element of that, but one of the things that, and, and this was only possible in the rewatch because mm-hmm. I couldn't possibly have known the layers that were going into this mm-hmm. leading up to it, but the the interactions that Halbrand has with various characters, and in particular his conversations with Galadriel, made me think Vickers is playing more subtlety to this than I think we realise. Mm. Because yes, there's the, I'm sort of pretending that I'm this nobleman in hiding, mm-hmm. but underneath that there is the most evil being that's ever lived. Mm. But then there's a, there's a kind of a midpoint that I was picking up on that almost seemed like by virtue of taking human form, he's opened himself up to the sensation of human emotions and a potentially more human perspective than he's ever had in his life. Because he's been an elf, he's seen things from that very long range perspective. But when you're a human, everything is very different because your time frames are much shorter. Everything feels much more intense. You've got these bizarre chemicals knocking around that keep making your decisions for you. It's mm. extremely, like, frustrating. But the that burst of anger and the, the desire for vengeance that sort of bubbled up when he was talking to Adar, it almost felt like maybe it's not a calculated I'm going to kill you if you recognise me. Maybe it is just you fucker, you killed me. And and it's that human response. <laughs> the the uh, excitement that he expresses over riding into battle with Galadriel, mm. that felt totally authentic. There's, there's hints under there, even before they have their uh, the, the vision on the raft, that maybe he is falling for her. Mm. And that is a very human expression and there was this there's this real tragedy in those moments if you sort of interpret it at he's reaching out of the darkness into the exactly there's maybe a few moments here where he could make a different decision and change his course and ultimately we know he doesn't Uh, also this is slipping into fucking not particularly healthy kinds of fanfic where it's rehabilitation of bad boys I can change it trying to no 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 I'm not trying to redeem him. Oh I know I'm I just know. saying we also know he doesn't change. It's very sad that he doesn't and the, change. And their last words are rather terse. She goes Marilyn Manson. Well indeed. <laughs> and but so, but ultimately that that course into really being Sauron the destroyer of all things mm. comes when he ditches the human form entirely and decides to become a building. A giant eye. <laughs> and although it does actually help his diction because he gets a voice like Benedict Cumberbatch. He does. He just he, he can't talk about penguins, but everything else. Yeah, which is very impressive. Yeah. He also didn't have much of a choice. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. It was it was uh, the, the body was kind of done. Yeah. 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 But the the what you're talking about is he the actor in in spite of the fact that like Halbrand slash Sauron's been so much of this season just like telling a whole bunch of lies like he's also telling a whole bunch of truths he keeps saying I'm not who you think I am and he's also playing like a lot of the emotional truths specifically um, like you were talking about when when he's doing the like oh my gosh I just caught feelings for doing things like is this is this natural is this supposed to happen it's a way of humanizing him without standing behind his actions it's a way of like showing that's like yeah he's he's got like these genuinely understandable qualities mm. while still also showing it's like and that makes it even worse yeah 
Okay, let's talk about dwarves. Specifically, uh, Durin, played by Owain Arthur. Like, he's definitely my top three favorite elements of this. Uh, and he gives a performance that is so physical and so nuanced and so brittle for a dwarf that um, I, I could easily see this in the wetter Lord of the Rings, like transcending The Hobbit. Yeah. I really love his relationship with uh, Elrond and the fact that it goes back and forth in terms... Well, it's mostly Elrond being self-effacing, but occasionally it'll, you know, he'll, you'll get sparks of anger from him. There's just so many little... Because he changes his mood so often, you're kind of observing him from Elrond's point of view. You're fond of him, but because he's mortal and thus, you know, lives incredibly fast relative to you, he's like, okay, now you're angry, and I'm so, so sorry I offended you. Now you're happy for some reason. Now you're drunk. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a half hour. <laughs> it's like He's almost observing him like a toddler or something. was like... <laughs> just so many emotions all boiling around this little body and oh another thing that's really significant about the dwarves and elves whatever they're doing with forced perspective green screen etc for the height differentials is so seamless i have no clue how they're doing it i just stopped thinking about it yeah well i think they're doing it like they did in lord of the rings and not like they did in the hobbits was the hobbit they couldn't they do that have it in 3D. 3d high frame yeah. rate um, no, yeah, my my two. F you know, I I think the the dwarf, all of the dwarves and stuff, is probably my favourite stuff from this, mm. because I I loved the um, Elrond tells Durin that he's the only the only hope for the elven elven race, and, and he just like, no, who's the only hope? Yeah. Mm, say it again one more time, Elrond. <laughs> 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 And then when Elrond um, reveals that he threw the hammer game, it's like, yep. <laughs> I love that. It's like, just he's, he's like, like he's um, Elrond's a smirk and go like, yep. Yeah, I did that. I was, just, you know, it was just, I was slightly winded. That was it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, again, there's a lot, I mean, there's a lot of parallels between sort of like, you know, uh, Legolas and Gimli's relationship, but, but they've known each other for obviously much more long, much longer a time. Mm -hmm. So there's, Legolas and Gimli is the start of that sort of friendship when uh, Elrond and Durin is it's you know can, you know it's it's matured more. Yeah, uh, it it does feel like they they had that before. Yeah, it's framed like they had that before. And, and then, then Elrond went off for twenty years and didn't notice twenty years. <laughs> I love that argument is yeah. heartbreaking. When it, like he's he's roaring at, at Elrond, you miss this, you miss this, you miss this, and Elrond's like. Fuck. Like he hadn't even considered that that might be a problem. Absolutely. Because for elves, you can do that. You can go away for 25 odd years and yeah. come back and it'd be like no time's passed at all. Yeah. Sharon, did you want to talk about Deesa, the uh, um, I his, his think wife? I already did. Oh, you did. What, yeah, what sure. I said about her, mm. her decisions, but the way they're presented and, mm. and through her eyes as a character yeah. sells it in spite of the fact that the choices that she's making are going to result mm. in terrible consequences that's the thing they're not necessarily poor decisions mm. it's that it's just that we know where those roads go but i i the whole yeah. it, uh, the camera pans down and the balrog turns up and goes ah, i'm looking for some dwarfs weirdly enough i the, the one piece of of uh middle earth fan fiction i ever wrote was a tiny little snippet of of something about thorin uh being in the the um slash thing no 
<laughs> no? You say that like, oh, how could you think that of me? <laughs> no, 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 I know customarily, but I don't talk about that. If I'm talking about it, you can pretty much guarantee it's not. Um, but All no, right. it was it was a conversation you that should he share has. It more. <laughs> there's a conversation that he has with his uh, with his sister, oh, Dis, yes. who I'm assuming is named for Disa, yeah. and the 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 essence of the character actually felt quite familiar to mm. me, um, even though we, I mean we know nothing about. Dis from the the Hobbit movies at all. She's yeah. never even mentioned. Um, but barely know about his relationship but, with his father. Yeah, but that that sense of the the male dwarves that we see rather a lot of are very tight lipped. They keep the cards very close to the chest. They don't talk about who they are and and unless they're in a very comfortable environment and with somebody that they are very relaxed with. So Clearly, for example, having that character who knows him very well and is able to draw more out of him mm. than somebody else might be able to is a, a really crucial relationship to, to portray. So I, I really love the way that she was set up and that whole addition of the singing to the mountain to find out yeah. what's there. That was amazing. That. that was so beautiful. The use of singing in this show makes me so happy. Mm. I, I know not a lot of people like are, are into Tolkien's, well, it's time to stop for a song every three pages. <laughs> but but I do I do love like how we get windows into different cultures and in how that's used in this and well and, and even going back to like there's a there's a lot more singing and 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 like pro, uh, you know poetic prose that in, in Jackson's films than, than people tend to remember, but the way it uh, specifically does the singing plus nature like the (laughs) the fact that like you you make things in middle earth like that by singing that that is like one of the purest acts of expression and creation that that you can possibly do like the valor literally sing the world into existence and so that's that's just kind of like a a you know neat little like Oh yeah, this is kind of how this world works. But it's also a way for for DC to have like this incredibly like neat, powerful uh, sort of like skill set that we haven't seen explored a lot in like fantasy shows really at all. Like we're we're looking at someone who's got like super mining skills, and this is sort of this like weird little like we we have like a base familiarity of like yeah, dwarves go in, they mine the mithril, and they do this. But when you kind of like look at how Khazad Doom and how like everything is presented, it's like wow, this is for all that it's very familiar dwarves and mountain stuff. Like there's a lot of really interesting, unique wrinkles that make it feel both of a piece with Middle Earth, but also not just more more fantasy like the the fact that like the dwarves in this are so good when it would be so easy for dwarves to just be like okay yep it's time for the rules now we yep get some people give them vaguely scottish northern accents and uh make them hairy and make them mad and make sure they ha- they drink a lot but this goes so much harder that there is such a broad spectrum between this mythological concept of song and it being so closely connected to the act of creation and like you said the Valar singing the world into being I mean that that is at the root of lots of different world mythologies the idea that song and and the purity of um, of singing is a a creative act in and of itself and, and brings spiritual stuff into the world that wouldn't be there otherwise all the way along to 
sonic resonance actually does make a lot of sense. Like you put noise into a rock to find out what's underneath it. That is a scientific thing that can be done. And it makes sense then if you if you look at the connection between the two that the reason why the dwarves might have this uh, inherent ability to carve mountains into what they want them to be is that unique to their physiology is the ability to sing into a piece of rock and know that if you carve it it's not going to collapse underneath you yeah. just whistle while you work <laughs> <clears throat> okay so uh, let's uh, tackle the uh, men and I actually chose uh, of all of these Muriel to, uh, to best exemplify them since she has the most responsibility uh, we can also obviously talk about uh, Isildur and um, Elendil. Sorry, there is a <laughs> there's a problem with nomenclature in Tolkien where it's like you know, Erendil, uh, Erendil, Essendir, Elisar, Elisar, and what's the kid called? There's also Erendil, which is what Aragorn shouts when he's fighting an Amon Hen. But there's also the light of their most beloved star, Erendil. Yeah. Just yep. Elrond's dad. Oh, so that's Elrond's that's dad as well. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's all. It, it's, uh, there's also the fact that uh, Nori is called Nori. One of the dwarves is also called yep. Nori, but yeah. Nori is short for <laughs> Eleanor, which I love this, by the way, and I don't think it's ever been confirmed. But that's the name of Samwise Gamgee's child. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, mm. That was almost Marion's name too. Nice. It's a lovely name. Uh, okay. So Miriel. Uh, even though she is time displaced. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what can we see of the Numenorians now as they are? Because it felt like I was sort of watching for for something to change, and then it seemed to all just come down to the fact that the uh, the old man died. Is that the king? She's the re- yes. She, yeah. He's the king. Yeah. He's her father. Yeah. She is the queen regent. The equivalent of Denethor. Until he dies, the uh, pre- presumably the mantle of, of the monarchy cannot ah, right. pass to her. However, so by blood she technically could and should inherit the throne, but because she's a woman, she's been busted down to Denethor status. Was, she gets a little throne beside the big one. Yeah. Well, that was a guess on my part. I don't know if that's accurate. It's just if for for Elendil to end up being the king, mm. the only pathway I can see for that to happen is for him to marry her, mm. and their relationship seems such that they wouldn't do so unless it was for practical reasons. Well, he's Davos Seaworthy and he's very, very nice, <laughs> so I'm sure that we're going to get approached that I'm at sure some that, point. Yeah, I'm sure right, they'll yeah. how, how, how many facts do you want? <laughs> uh, okay, go with the facts and, and just generally like, uh, what so, is Numenor like and should it be any different, really? Well, some of these might be spoilers is the only issue because oh. some of this is going to happen. But, um, I, mean, I think what, well, we, we don't know. And then there'll be a, yeah. a million or maybe 20 BuzzFeed articles between now and season two <laughs> oh, where I they're speculating. Right <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not a Marvel, so we don't know. Uh, where they're speculating on little tiny details. But, uh, like, you know, remember how long we speculated on, oh, were well, they going to go to Moria in The Hobbit? No, not at all. So I... Um, so, I mean, they're, I mean, obviously, they, they make a very big thing of saying that obviously they're a sea, sea-based, uh, sea-based culture. Mm. The, the motto of the sea is always right is not the best, but it's it's hammered into them. Um, so that's why is I, that uh, accurate? By the way, the sea is always right. No, oh. uh, no, I don't. Well, there's not. I don't think. I don't mean in the literal sense. I mean, is that accurate to the books? <laughs> Uh, I, well, the, I think Numenor. I don't. I've, the problem is again, all of this stuff is in appendices and like history of. So I don't know mm. if it goes down to that level of okay. just you know pop sort of you know culture. Mm. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, but they're definitely, I mean, they're like, a, they're, they're technically like two different races of the Edine, or the two different groups as the Edine and then the Dunedine. Um, I was initially concerned that they seem to be very horse-based for a seafaring uh, culture, which, and horses do not typically fare well on ships, especially as you have to hoist them in and out of it, and that's very difficult to do when you've got to wherever you're going. Mm. Um, but apparently the Dunedain are very horse horse based and again they was it was all a whole you know they they used horses a lot because they're, they're yeah. big island you know big islands they don't have anything else other than horses you got horses and carriages and then sail to the sail around the coast if you want to go the other way um so for Muriel she I think she's only queen regent because her father is alive she should become queen let's say and then something happens, but this is, I think that probably is too much of a spoiler, which will, will definitely happen. Okay. Um, but... God! <laughs> Can you just, let, you tell us, and I'll, okay. I'll work out um, whether to include it or not. So, after... Um, I can even tell people, skip ahead by, say, two minutes, if you don't want to hear this. So yeah, now that her dad is dead, um, Farazon basically forces her to marry him, and he becomes king. Oh! the guildmaster guy yeah mm. yeah, yeah i uh, took him his name off the list because he wasn't interesting enough <laughs> oh. he becomes very interesting to the future fate of Numenor. Ah. okay right. in but um and then yes elendil's basically claim to the throne is that he was he is the son of a noble mm. and he's he leads the group that leaves Numenor before it um, just, you know, it, for it goes Atlantis. Right, so it's more so he, he's the king of the Numenorians that left. Yeah, basically. Gotcha. Or he's basically the king of the faithful because basically it's just a very big split between the faithful led by him and potentially, yeah, potentially more Muriel in this. I don't think she's you know ma a massive character in the in the law. Right. Um, but obviously they're mate of characters, so she may be more involved in the the pol you know, in the politics and hmm. making that a very obvious split between the two groups. And then, yeah, then uh, Elendil will uh, found Arnor, and then Isildur will go to will found Gondor in the south. Was Miriel in the original text uh, blinded by smoke and flame? Because she, if not, that's a that is a significant choice. Um, again, I don't think so. Again, that's that's. I, I assume not. Being, I think that makes it easier for her to be forced into marriage because right. I don't think, I don't think. That, so I mean, her character was incredibly strong and and sort of willful, and I don't think there was a way. Basically, I don't think there's a way that how they've characterised her to just be forced into marriage with Farazon because she is rightfully the queen. Hmm. She's only the queen regent because her hmm. dad is still alive. I was wondering um, whether it was something to do with the Palantir. Like, uh, at some point she might end up getting... Well, it's effectively Middle-Earth Skype. We've said this before. And <laughs> Sauron's going to be monitoring all the channels. And he's a deceiver. So he can pretty much make himself look like anyone. He's like, I think you should make rings. <laughs> <laughs> or something. Well, I, mean, I think he's doing again, the ring thing too much. He's pretty all he's got. <laughs> I mean, if we, if we want to go into even more spoiler territory, I mean, saying about... How Fast forward another two minutes, folks. Yeah. <laughs> but how Bran Stake wanted to stay on, on Numenor, that literally happens. Sauron goes and stays on Numenor, causes them to start worshipping Melkor, and then that's basically why they're Atlantis. Oh, shit. They're Atlantis. It's a so verb, folks. So he could yeah. feasibly then look <laughs> the back The whole of the, the island sinks. Yeah, because they don't I know about everything that went off in Eridion, do they? Well, yeah, I don't know what they're going to do because what's supposed to happen is... They go back again. The Numenor goes back again, 
um, Sauron says, "Oh, you've got me. I've I've been defeated, and then but you can take me back as prisoner, basically." And then he, you know, sows discord. Oh, wait a second. What if Muriel n- marries nine kings? <laughs> None of them work out, but they all get a ring as a uh, party favor. Yeah, there you go. Take the ring. <laughs> I think uh, one That more. is a hell of a way to pass them around the king. Do you know what? I can't be bothered. The post round here is an absolute noise. You come to us, marry her, and then you get a ring to take home. I mean, it's not the most female empowering story, <laughs> but okay. Yeah. Anyway, okay, moving on from speculation yeah. because we don't know. Yeah, yeah. Anything else on the... We haven't really talked about the people who were living in the Southlands who are kind of... Um, early Rohan, though they actually um, seem to be best exemplified by Arondir, the uh, the, the elf who <sighs> I don't know if you remember from the Hobbit. Uh, there's two types of elf: uh, Sylvan, who are sort of a, a lower caste of elves, which he is as well, and uh, Sindarin who are the slightly posher elves. The main distinction that I can see between the two being that Cinderin elves build stuff Hmm. and Sylvan elves are quite happy to live in the woods that are already there. Okay. Well, Tauriel, that would be um, um, anti-vaxxing Evangeline Lily the Wasp, uh, it was uh, Sylvan. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are obviously a lot more than that. (laughs) (laughs) There are other differences. Do you want to elucidate them? Because it it felt like Arondir was quite different to all the other elves elves we were seeing. Yeah, I mean, well, there's Noldor, which is the High Elves, which is what Gladrail is. Mm. Um, There's... I I want to say Telemari, but I don't think that's right. They're sea elves who Feanor killed. Mm. Um, And, I mean, so basically, wood elves and high elves and sea elves are pretty the main things. He seems to be more of a wood elf Mm. than judging by the, the armour he's wearing. I loved the green man oh, on his arm. Yes, fantastic. Yes. That was mm-hmm. fantastic. Absolutely loved no. the design in that. And the fact that it, it not just the, the, the green man face pattern, but the, the texture made it look like it yeah. was a piece of bark. Yeah. Also, in yeah, his that... story, they managed to make Wags absolutely terrifying for the first time on screen. I... Good God, that was terrifying. Oh, mm. man. That, that entire action sequence is like one of my favourite things I've seen them do with creatures in middle earth mm. wow and and the and also i think that like the the guy they've got playing uh playing around here um i think it's uh is it daniel cruz cordova mm-hmm. um or is no cruz cordova um but uh he's he's got like this really not quite thankless but very obviously difficult task of like okay we we're doing a uh, we're going to do an elf human romance. We want you to be elven, but we also want you to be not too elven because we're <laughs> trying to do the, you know, the the slightly more, you know, earthy, you know, wood elf sort of thing. But we still got to draw the distinctions. And you like, and and he's got, you know, he's getting bounced around all these different plot lines, and he's get and he's got all these different things that he's got to play off of, and he's got to be, you know, one of the. Like of all the cast members, he might have like the most demanding like mm. drama plus physical role. It's uh, appropriate that of all the original Lord of the Rings cast, he's probably the one who plays it the most like Viggo Mortensen. Mm. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. he's got all this on yeah. his shoulders well, and he's, he's just, got... he doesn't leave anything for himself. Yeah, like Brendan said, he, he seems to do the most actual straight up fighting. Yeah. Yeah. I was really worried at first with uh, the relationship between him and Bronwyn because it, it felt like we were, you know, it, it's really easy to just like, oh, okay, we're going to recycle an elf human romance. 
and and I didn't know how much time we were going to get to spend with them. Hmm. But but the way that like we kind of get to you know check in on them and you know they're, they're they spend a lot of like the film either being separated or having to work together because there's just like an apocalypse happening mm. um and it, it makes all these little moments that they do end up getting feel like these these like stolen oases yeah um it, it was also kind of weird because like uh i i have a, a my sister who is a tall brunette is named bronwyn uh so that, that was a kind of a, <laughs> a weird like just so every time someone says her name it's like eh, just weird ping in my brain um this is the first time but they switched I, it around so I, that the elf is male and the human is uh, female, which gives me a Highlander vibe. Yes, and that's that's one of the other things that I really appreciated is we get to see sort of like a a different, just just a different dynamic. One one of the other things that I think um, I think we're just uh, we're happened. conferring uh, automatic human sensibilities upon Keeley here, who is in fact a dwarf. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, well, yeah, yeah, um, elf also, and not I, elf. I don't think they, yeah, and, they, and he has so little time to make anything out of that. Um, yeah. That that was another thing. It's like they they give this a lot more time to breathe. And they're all analogous to Beren and Luthien, which was a gang: elf maiden, human man. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Well, was it was he one of the Dunedain? I forget. But but yeah, the significant point being that the 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 woman in the relationship, and they are all very heteronormative, as we discussed. Um, yeah, the, nowhere near enough queerness in this yet. Um, no. But the the fact that you have the the woman in the relationship being the the almost immortal, uh, incredibly beautiful, untouchable. untouchable. That's precisely what that's, uh, that, Tolkien that saw Galadriel as. A, a representation of the courtly love of this woman is so far above me. Mm. All I can do is is touch the hem of her gown. Mm. It's Dulcinea all over again. Yeah, yeah. or uh, Guinevere and uh, much the Miller's son. Something like that. <laughs> but yeah, t- turning that around and making her somebody who is very invested in the the um, lives and well-being of mm. her extremely short-lived group of people, yeah. it, it does change that dynamic quite They're very kind of uh, Bronze Age, so it's like it, they'll be dying of old age and fear at the age of 20. Something like that. I really liked the conversation that they have at the well about their their people's relative methods of healing mm-hmm. and the fact that they both have like recognized certain plants as special but for different mm-hmm. reasons. I think uh, the level of how much I liked it and the level of preposterous that the plug this bit of sword into here as oh no plug this reforged sword into here it's a key twist this thing here and you get a whole volcano emerging to sort of create a whole new landscape I love it so much even though it's 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 wackadoo okay, in terms of any kind of physics to turn the volcano on just warm it up for me I'll be there soon yeah. <laughs> This is probably where it gets the most Game of Thrones because the disturbing sort of cult of uh, Sauron, that the humans, well, I'm assuming their greatest descendants ended up being those wild men uh, that uh, Saruman managed to sort of knock into a, uh, a frenzy. They seem all too willing to surrender all humanity uh, to... You know, to, to be by the side of the devil rather than in his path. They're all bennies. Have you seen America? <laughs> all right. No, what's it like? <laughs> well done. That, that was actually one of my favorite things about this show is is it shows both the like there, there's a, a danger when you're looking at how the show is being not necessarily sympathetic towards the orcs, but it is kind of like showing a bit of their like culture and giving a bit of their point of view and, mm. and doing like and showing like yes these are 
you know, everyone wants a home. Hmm. And and then they show, okay, yeah, uh, but they're they're fascist, murdering, genocidal fuck sticks. And like the the fact that like the reveal of these people in the armor choosing to put on the white hoods and become monstrous mm -hmm. and murder mm -hmm. their neighbors. And it's that was possibly like horrifying. Choosing to put on the white hoods. This is not subtle. <laughs> no, no, it's not. Like that that was that was horrifying. But it was also at the same time as like, what did you think was gonna happen? Yeah. <laughs> like, did, did you did you think this was gonna go well for you? Well, yeah, it just shows. Yeah, it's just a, a yeah illustration of how people in power obviously treat you know low you know people without power. It's like obviously mm -hmm. wars through the ages of sending the the cannon fodder in because they they they're not you know important enough to matter. Yeah. So you see the the hierarchy of Adar being, you know, being the leader, the orcs being the, you know, the the people that are worth keeping, yeah. and then the, the cannon fodder humans can send in, and you know, it doesn't it doesn't matter what happens to them. And then just also psychological warfare of killing people that you, you know, friends and family. But. Yeah. They're on. Uh, yeah. That that after like you know. You know, I I'll, I'll like ride my bike down the street and see like Trump flags on on flagpoles <laughs> in the neighborhood. It's like, yeah, well, you would have done that, okay? <laughs> They're on uh, difficult, uh, treacherous ground here because ultimately, the more you humanize the, uh, the the orcs, the more you're breaking new ground and writing new and more complex stories. You might have an orc who decides he doesn't want to do this shit anymore and breaks away. But just like Finn, the stormtrooper in Star Wars, you have to follow up on that. Otherwise, you leave this thread dangling and it's a kind of case of, so what about all the other orcs slash stormtroopers? Mm. And this is, it's straying into... Um, Shadow of Mordor and Shadow of War, the, the games that were very much about kind of assassins creeding your way around uh, the Mordor landscape and, and sort of arranging infighting with a whole bunch of all chieftains. And I was never any good at that game. I just, I kept, like, uh, I would make brand new chieftain enemies and then I would try to seek them out and they would kill me every single goddamn time and get more powerful each time. I did at least appreciate seeing Celebrimbor here. I was like, ah, I know you. But um, but the thing is, if if you add complexity, you then call you you then generate all sorts of questions. That's why adding complexity in prequels to bad people is the thinnest of ice. Because like this sort of world that you set up, say, I don't know, if you have goblin bankers and uh, house elf slaves, you could definitely write stories that come after the main story where you go, let's just readjust some of this stuff and, and set us on a trajectory we towards... We develop this going forward. Yeah, we can't develop this when we're in the past because any steps we make will be walked back. Yeah, because otherwise people will look at it and go, I don't get it. You were actually on a road to being extremely civilised when the Romans were there and then they left <laughs> and then everything fell apart. Hmm. What exactly happened? It was a dark age, I believe. Well, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway... Um, let's get to the Harfoots, who are my favourite part of this. Brief stop off at Durin Senior, played by, uh, what's his name? Peter Mullen? Said don't care. Yep. Bone chilling patriarch. And I could actually, this time around, though I loathed him, I could actually see him, you know, just sort of expressing a fondness for his son. And then, you know, the, the, the Durin the Fourth expressing. 
but if I do anything... You want me to be my own leader, but if I do anything that you wouldn't do, you, you fall to pieces. It's just this kind of poisoned, abiding, ancient generation that won't shut up and fuck off and stay out of the actual uh, business of, of being able to fix the problems of the world. But when it comes to long-term consequences, he's right. Yeah, absolutely. He, he is, even though he's just this beautiful example of, of a parent who loves their child so long as their child is only an extension of them rather than exactly. their own yes. person, which is, which is like so widespread mm. yeah. but but that's the thing i think this is why it's frustrating that in terms of long-term consequences he is technically correct it actually doesn't matter because he doesn't know he's right yeah. he has no knowledge of those long-term consequences he's making those decisions based around his own panic yeah. his own need to keep a grip on he's what's going on correct through spurious thinking yes and durin's incorrect but has his heart absolutely in the right place absolutely absolutely yeah. and and ultimately though this is a prequel and we know where it's going to come out yeah. you can't make decisions in history based on hindsight yeah. you could easily argue that if they had worked together and figured something out and Duran and Disa weren't like having to sneak around behind people's backs like maybe Maybe they don't get all the way down to that one chamber where the bower arguments. Mm. Like this is this is very clearly a there but for one conversation going better. Yeah. Uh, the Balrog kind of throws everything into question mark territory <laughs> in terms of his design. It's one to one. That's the Balrog we saw before in Fellowship of the Ring at the beginning of the Two Towers. Is it literally? Yeah. Did they do that to save money so that they didn't have to design another Balrog? No, I think no, that was okay. a deliberate concession on that part, saying that there are some things that don't change here. Obviously, obviously, we can't have a de-aged Ian McKellen playing this Gandalf character. Um, we can't do, we can't get raised Christopher Lee from the grave to play young Saruman, but um, but we can deliver the Balrog again, which is why I'm like, well, if you're going to do that. Definitely bring in some of those themes from uh, the uh, Lord of the Rings trilogy because if there's one thing that feels like it's a, a, a definite one-to-one -one link that's there but also there, then that opens the door, whether you want it to or not, the doors of Durin for more. Mm. Mm. The Harfoots, my favourite part of this. And I think I realized it the most the second time because uh, there's a lot of men bickering over uh, bloodlines and kings that aren't where they should be. And uh, there's a lot of dwarves arguing about blood bloodlines and being kings but not doing the right thing. And there's a lot of elves going, well, what are we going to do? We're fading. God, if only we had some sort of thin, small metal thing. But the Harfoots was like an archaeological dig into Hobbit history that felt really accurate, if that makes any sense. Like you I could love see these also. Muppety little guys. Yeah. Like the, the whole <laughs> like the the fact that it's like this weird Sesame Street meets Hobbiton sort of vibe <laughs> mm. that, that Bit of Fraggle Rock in there. Exactly. Like it, it shows it shows you where everything the the wheels like it's like you could oh yep they're gonna turn wheels into doors because that's how they feel safe and it's just the the way they show all this and it's like immediately oh of course are the hobbits but then it's like very very different as well but you can also see like the the little like social characteristics that will then evolve mm. uh these these are this i think the harfits are why this works at all yeah 
Yeah, without this, if, if we just got like a little flash of them at the very, very end as a sort of a teasing for season two, we're going to do early Hobbits. It would have been like, oh, I wish they'd done them for this because I could have, I could really do with that element. That's the underlying point of the whole of The Lord of the Rings, yeah. of certainly the whole of The Hobbit. It's about the virtue of the small. Yeah, if it's the, these staggering, world-changing stakes, but you're observing it from the point of view of, to you, they would appear as children. Exactly. So if you don't have a small perspective to see it through, then all of it just becomes this mm. highfalutin history stuff that doesn't matter. So if anything, we, we needed more going to conclude. half-foots in these different situations observing them. Yeah. Because, I mean, that, that's the way that uh, the original Lord of the Rings book was uh, written. Um, we, man- we stuck with Frodo and Sam as we, they went off in the Two Towers, but then uh, for, to get the whole Merry and Pippin thing, I, I think they did stick around with Aragorn, Legolas and Gimli, but it, it was quite fleeting relative to how much screen time and sort of kingly stuff Aragorn gets in the film. And certainly no flashbacks to Arwen. But the whole Merry's here, Pippin's there, especially in Return of the King, there being separated but being our hairy feet on the ground was our, like, little avatars. Yeah. But it was very rare that they would put you in the shoes of Gandalf, for example. Yeah, yeah. Because the, the, the whole point is to see when all of this stuff is going on, who ultimately is going to live or die based on these decisions being made? And the fact that the Hobbits have spent all of this time effectively being able to negotiate the strips of grass that Sauron hasn't burned Mm. and live in the the little in-between places that are still thriving... Mm. It, it almost starts to feel like it's their presence that means those places are thriving. What we want here, in, in the long-term view of Middle-earth, is the Hobbit people to spread. To have a love of things that grow. Yeah, and, and to encourage that. It's almost like when the, the land has been volcanically burned mm. and stripped back to dead tree and not a whole lot else... The hobbits are the, or the, the harfoots in this case, but that, that level of being is like, this is the nature that's going to come back and reclaim it. Mm. That's what we want to encourage. That's the spark we can't allow to die. And I loved uh, Nori and Poppy so much uh, in, in their, you know, obvious Frodo and Sam, Mary and Pippin uh, analogy, uh, that it... It felt really painful at the end when they uh, were, were dividing up. And I was like, no, no, take her with you. And then <laughs> I realized the second time, no, 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 wait, wait, wait. They're right. They're actually sort of drawing Poppy up to more of a sort of a, a Pathfinder figure so that we can stay with them. I was just going to say, because if Poppy goes with them, we have no reason to keep eyes on the half No major reason. Yeah, to, which we need. Or no major hairy feet on the ground. Mm. I also like with the half it's the sort of disparity between you know that they're always sort of looking on the good side and they're all happy and, mm. and with the memorial service finding out you know this isn't them just like having fun and, and moving through countryside it's like they're getting eaten by wolves yeah and and that's the, the, the that was the the one of the saddest moments was finding out like all of Poppy's family died last yeah. time yeah you know and they, but they still seem to you know they still have the sort of overriding Sort of joy the hobbit you know but basically the, the the defining things of hobbits are they're short and they're happy yeah um, more strength from each other like but this yeah uh, the the framing of that ritual just just to, to 
speak of that that conversation and the the way they interact with each other when they're saying farewell to the people that they've lost on the journey that felt very much like they don't have time to mourn when they're on the move they have to keep going they only get to experience this this saying goodbye when they stop and they say very specifically the chant is we wait for you which is not what they're doing they're moving on moving on moving on but that's the thing waiting is in the symbolic it's not literal it's in the in, in the figurative they are moving on but they are waiting to reunite yeah. to draw and strength they, from each other they again. will keep going and eventually the cycle of, of life will come back mm. around again they more than any other people have established a home mm. even without a home yeah, they, they are their home them. yeah absolutely they carry it with them and, and therefore that's something that they mm. regardless of where they go and and in part this is why the the whole uh, nobody goes off trail and nobody walks alone which is supposed to feel like everyone has their place and everybody is mm. safe and we look after everyone but it is don't but leave the fire circle has that double-edged sword of but if we want to, if you do something that we disagree with, we will send we will you to the you back. Out. And if you can't keep up, we will yeah. leave you behind. There are little signs of the uh, of the Hobbit's ability to just shun you and just go right. Well, you know, you you fall out of favour with the Sackville Bagginses. But ultimately, <laughs> the, in, in terms of like a, a people who don't, they are not aggressive. They are not violent. What do you do when somebody does something that is is detrimental to the the social structure that you have? All you can do is push them away. Yeah. They have no, they have no defenses. They have no survival advantages other than being able to hide. And so everything that they have in their civilization is geared toward basically like coping with that, even psychologically. Mm. And so you have this culture that's both incredibly comfortable and bound together, but also like bound together with like strands of spider web. Because mm. I mean, they, they will just get eaten if something bigger than them catches them Absolutely. and that and that not only does like what well, like you were saying the 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 nobody goes off trail nobody walks alone except for when you do something we don't like um but that that also like even echoes all the way back like thousands of years later into like hobbits not feeling safe going on adventures well no shit <laughs> because they just got eaten all the time and and honestly like the the as much as I love um, Nori and, and and Poppy just as they are, I I kind of feel like if you're going to do a, a same gender romance in, in Middle Earth, like that is such a layup between those two. And, I, and I'm not saying like I, I want to like, you know, hey, you know, we, we got to shift these two characters for representation. But like, man, that that would be that would be pr- a pretty easy dunk, I feel. Yeah. Did Isildur have a brother called Anarian? Yeah, they do mention. So, all right. Yeah, was he in it? They, no. They, they see. Uh, they implied. I. Well, I got the impression that he was supposed to be the older brother, but he's supposed to be the younger brother in uh, right. Okay. I was going to say and, they, dis- they discuss an older brother, but he is yeah. not featured. Okay. And he doesn't really um, do anything. And you know, Inarian isn't a character. <laughs> right. And there's uh, and there's Arian, his sister, instead, who was made up for this just so they can get yeah. more women into play. And also they're going to have the romance with Kevin, which is going to cause problems when Farazon yeah. goes bad. Yeah. Once someone's sliding into his DMs via power <laughs> or whatever. Um, oh, I have to especially mention a, a, an actor that most Americans won't know or care that much about, Lenny Henry, uh, mm. who played uh, Sadok. Yeah, they killed Lenny Henry. 
yes, <laughs> but he delivered an amazingly oh, yeah. nuanced performance and was practically unrecognisable if you know his work from the 90s. Yeah. Yeah, it was wonderful watching him and it gave that heartache to the the fragility of the existence of these these folk. The, the, the fact that they stay with him, they don't yes. leave him behind. That's so yeah. huge because that again is, it's almost a contradiction to that. They, the fact that they don't normally have time to mourn because they have to keep going. But in this instance, it wasn't a case of, you know, he says he knows it's his time. He's going to stay here and watch the sun come up. I was expecting them to gather their things together and, and kind of walk away and leave him there, but they don't. They mm. sit there with him and they wait. And that felt so warm and hard to do, but so key to that real sense of family. That final episode, I think, just does so well on the Harfoots in general. The 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 when when Eleanor's talking to her mother and she says, I'll be careful, and her mother says, No, you're gonna be bold. Hmm. That that just freaking killed me. Absolutely killed me. As easy as it is, and as much as it kind of makes me roll my eyes whenever we get the like, oh, you get here's here's a member bear, you guys remember when the character said the thing? The like show very much planting its flag of this is Gandalf with, you know, always follow your nose. Uh-huh. Not not necessarily because of what he's saying, but because the actor sounds like Gandalf talking to the hobbits. Yeah. And it's not mm-hmm. like it's not that he's it's not that he's saying the thing, it's that he's doing the thing. And ultimately, mm. I think that's that's kind of where this this show is strongest is when it's just doing that sort of very emotionally grounded and character focused, while at the same time insanely huge scope and scale sort of storytelling. And I think that's where it actually works. I don't know if it's going to work the whole way through, but but like I said, you know, if nothing else, this this first series went from I do not care about it to. Well, crap, there's hobbits. I guess I better watch it. I've got to also praise Daniel Wayman, who played the stranger, who may or may not, but he is, be, Gal- uh, be Gandalf. <laughs> His physical performance, uh, I was like sitting there going, okay, so this guy looks a lot like Gandalf and, and the whole sort of falling from the uh, sky and he's like a crazy old wizard and he's he's falling on top of the Harfoots. Uh, this all points to him being Gandalf, but you are you are going to have to work so fucking hard to in any way match up with Ian McKellen in my head. Like, my, this was the most resistant part of me. But then almost immediately, he was acting like someone who has certain motor functions, but whose head is just a maelstrom and they haven't learned anything yet, and who was just sort of trying to touch nature and sort of get to to understand the elements and water and fire and ash and earth and the trees and the wood and the grass and he was just like you know how um Radagast the Brown looks like he actually didn't evolve much beyond this and must have just landed on some hedgehogs <laughs> and stayed there and stayed there yeah. um and then the hedgehogs taught him English because they were Narnian hedgehogs um <laughs> it's he actually somehow convinced me with his physicality and his abstraction of character that because he wasn't doing a McKellen impression or even trying to deliver lines like Gandalf, 
but just delivering a very different version of him that actually kind of made both logical and to some degree, especially as it went along, the more he connected with the Harfoot, emotional sense to me. Left me by the end going, okay, let's again, let's just see see where this one goes because him and Nori traveling together, I am totally here for. Like, yeah. I was like, could I edit just the Harfoot stuff into a little... It wouldn't exactly be a movie, but it would be a feature-length... I'm going to make it Tolkien-style. You watch everybody's plotline individually. <laughs> wouldn't it be all that bad, honestly? They be- very rarely interact. That actually might sort of be a, a strike against it. Because we don't have Hobbit's feet on the ground elsewhere, it feels sometimes a little too lofty, sometimes a little too bickery. Yeah. It would also then potentially enable you to resolve the timeline discrepancies, mm. um, albeit that the only point of, of real conjunction What, because is... Hobbits talk bollocks? No, no, no. <laughs> they like... remember things very hazily. Was I 1,200 years ago? <laughs> the the battles around... Um, the, between the orcs and the men and, yeah. and the, the Numenorians is, is really the only point where all of this intersects and couldn't simply be mm. combed apart and go, well, yes, this happened a thousand years before that. As I recall, I was hit in the head and was asleep at the time, the whole way through the battle. <laughs> it saved us a lot now, of money. Mm. <laughs> yeah, now, I think that we're going to... It would Again, it would be very easy to have, um, say, for example, Poppy's group you know, show up in the Southlands and meet up with Bronwyn or, or wherever, because one of the one of the things that they do sort of touch on, specifically in the books, they don't cover this as much in the movies, is that Rohan and Gondor have their own legends about hobbits. Like, like the halflings are, are familiar figures. It's just like, they just assume it's like, oh, we thought you guys just didn't exist. Like, what? Oh, I guess you're I guess you're real, and and also you're like wearing armor and riding with wizards and stuff. Yeah, uh, they're like the so, children of the forest. Yeah, and so it it would be. I, th- I think it would be smart to to really get them more involved, and also just there's there's only so much you can do with you know Poppy, you know, going around keeping people safe as they wander around to stuff. Like they're gonna have to wander somewhere eventually. If nothing else, they've got to get you know a bit north. Ah, you've reminded me of my fave song from the whole thing, which we'll end on. God, yes. Yeah, you know the one. <laughs> oh yeah, that one. <laughs> Um, Chris, any more? Because it feels like uh, from for the past ten minutes or so, you've been making not quite sure sounds. Well, the, I mean, I see that I was agree- sort of agreeing that they were definitely the stranger became more definitely Gandalf as time progressed. In that there was a bit in the migration when uh, Marigold says, "I don't snore," and he makes a face that it's just Ian McKellen and Gandalf making a face. It's not even <laughs> like, um, yeah, it's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You I can't just, say I, yeah, it's yeah. You've got to be more specific. That, that's worse than interesting in this I'm, case. It's, I'm, I'm, yeah, I don't know what they're going to do with the, with the half. Okay. Because, I mean, obviously. So, effectively, what we're getting is we're sort of mainlining into your uncertainty here. Yeah, I mean, cause, I mean, it would probably, I mean, it would make the best sense that they do meet up with Bronwyn and go further south mm. um, to Pelagia, but, and then they'll meet up with Isildur at some point. Mm. But I don't, yeah, it's just I it, yeah yes. I think the point is that all of I mean all of the south of the east and the south is basically you know that that's very vague in all of Tolkien mm. mythology, especially in the in the Lord of the Rings books where they're just they just their their categorization is evil and oh they're they're Easterlings then they're evil yeah oh Southrons they'll be brown and evil then yeah um, and again <laughs> again because like the Blue Wizards they go off east and then 
uh, they do something. But no, I, I, wa- I watched a video that tried to explain over 14 minutes what the Blue Wizards <laughs> did on the scant information that this person yeah. had. They tried their best. But it just names. seemed like the, the, yeah, the, the Wizards travelled over there and then they abided there for 1,200 years. And I'm like, fuck it, get out a bit more. Just do a bit yeah. more travelling. Like, if you look, you know there's an app that you can kind of, like, Oh, it's something to do with the um, the DLC for Breath of the Wild, where you can examine your path all over Hyrule, and it'll, it'll actually show the line you've traced as you've travelled around the place. Consider how much time the average game of Breath of the Wild takes relative to 1,200 years! Yeah. So that, it's like that, looking at your, your Google pathway during the pandemic. Yeah. Where was home, well, work, home, and back, home. Yep. and home? <laughs> Carry on, Chris, that, sorry. That is why I want him not to be Gandalf because if he is the Blue Wizard at least they explain what you know they, they, at least they go into the, sort of what they did and what happened in the east because that's again that's not explained yeah. so if it's just Gandalf we know what happens with Gandalf eventually he'll turn off again possibly as as actual Gandalf because again they could do that like, he could die go back to Valinor come back again that that would be a get out yeah. of why he turns up wrong um <laughs> turned up wrong. He's like a bad biscuit. I was waiting at the train station. You turned up on the bus. What the hell? I bought you a bag of irregular Gandalfs. I don't see what's so wrong about this one. Oh. Um. <laughs> and the things that he You got me a Gandalf. That's the wrong one. <laughs> ah, you want Gandalf. That's not cheap. Yeah. Um. <laughs> Anyway, I think we're pretty much done for this one for the time being. I think the only thing I want to say is the archery. I approve of the archery. Yes! <laughs> yes! So that's very much my... looking forward to the appearance of the Rohan pube <laughs> bow. <laughs> one, one of my... Like, my fav- one of my favourite scenes in this is when Arondir and Theo and then later Bronwyn are running through the forest. One thing, because it reminds me of Ammon Hen, and secondly... You know, it is the first instance of archery, and it's good archery. Mm. And then it ends on that really nice shot of them standing in the field, and then the sun sort of goes kind of comes behind the clouds. Yeah, yeah. And then it, and then it sort of transfers into Deesa singing over the mountains into the sort of the um, memorial she's oh, yeah. she's doing, and that just that sort of back to back scene is I think one of my favourites in in this, just because it's. Mm. I Evoking that, Amon Hen, absolutely. So it yeah. kind of it made a tightness form in your gut, and you're like, "Oh God!" Mm. Yeah. You know, I, I think that was I think that was the scenes that get yeah, mostly reminded me of the films, just because they seem to be the the they seem to have the most mm. intention of what they're actually going for. Yeah. They're going, they move, they're moving from this to then this other complete scene, completely different scene, but similar sort of emotions going on. Yeah, it's a, it's a sequence that links the different parts of this world and this story together, which mm. does seem to be, I, I don't want to say lacking, but it, it seems like they did not prioritise that for a lot of the, the series run. Yeah. I think we yeah. just hit on uh, when it can impress you the most. Because the bow work was good, that yeah. was a moment of both logical and emotional truth, which you yeah. really and, enjoyed. And, and also the, the tactics used in the village is sensible and not like at Helm's Deep where they have all these arrows left over. They could have been shooting for, mm. for hours, but no, we'll just wait for them to, to attack us and then have to throw the bows away and get our swords yeah. out. 
One thing I think has changed and will make uh, season two feel rather different. From the sounds of it, they were shooting in New Zealand, which would have been one of the early stipulations. Probably what ran the budget up of season one so incredibly high. They've changed that location shooting to England. So it's probably going to look different. And specifically look different to every previous Lord of the Rings thing because they were all in New Zealand mm. up until now. Well, depending on when they filmed it... Uh, Except for a bunch of stuff that was shot in London for The Hobbit. Yeah, New Zealand had some very specific restrictions around people coming and going from yeah. the country, so it's entirely possible that there were all sorts of additional expenses, including potentially moving people mm. there to facilitate them actually doing the job. Yeah. Uh, I would also recommend, folks, even though it might be quite depressing to watch, especially if you uh, have bright, starry eyes about the whole wetter uh, creation process of those those amazing films, Lindsay Ellis's uh, multi-part video series on the making of The Hobbit, where she goes to New Zealand in person and it just it turns out that it was a bit less of a uh, a massive favor to the uh, the nation than it's often been reported and uh, in on a personal level it's been less of a picnic mm, yeah. well i mean fundamentally one of the things that's been observed is that the the lord of the rings trilogy kicked off a film industry in new zealand that they have been unable to sustain yeah yeah, yeah it turned exploitive rather than beneficial to the yeah. economy School of Movies is funded by Patreon. That's everybody who wants to give and is able to give. And because of them, everybody gets this show and the new Century Multiverse. And at the top tier, our $15 sponsors get credit every episode. So thank you to Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard, Alejandro Vargas, Alex Brewington, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolf, Kieran Dashler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salguero, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Finbar Nicole, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Johan Clawson, Joe Gluck, Kevin Vahey, Lorraine Chisholm, Marty Polmeyer, Matthew A. Siebert, Michael Hasco, Sean Doran, Toby Skills Jungius, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Tom Painter, Timu Hellas Hayo, Sarah Montgomery, and Kat Esman. And if you're on our Patreon at the $5 level or higher, you will get to hear our revisit to the Lord of the Rings trilogy. That is coming up on an After School Club episode very soon. Before we close out, would you two like to promote anything that you'd like to share with the listeners? Let's start with Brendan. Uh, yes, um, I'm still on the uh, the Synapse team. That's cinapse.co. Most recently, I've put up a article about if we're you know speaking of big epic fantasy about the show Primal by Jendi Tartakovsky, uh, which just wrapped up its second season. I did a big long write up on that. Um, I'm also on the Matinee Heroes podcast. Um, we we did The Fog for Halloween. I'm going to be on the um, episode for Star Trek First Contact coming up. And uh, you can 
Also find me uh, until until it finishes uh, burning down. You can find me on Twitter at BLC Agnew <laughs> or writing uh, long long form stuff at uh, normannerd.blogspot.com. Okay, uh, Chris, anything you'd like to promote? Uh, yes, I'm on the Game Gameverse podcast. Um, we do a weekly video game news show. Not that I've been on in a few months, but um, yeah, and yeah, Twitter. I mean, my Twitter is basically just um, Wordle still because that's the, the thing that I play that everyone else seems to have dropped. And uh, then yeah, Doom scrolling for the the dumpster fire that is 2020, 2022. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> now, as I've hinted at repeatedly throughout the show, there is a double bind with discussing television in depth. The faster you get your coverage out there, the more people will want to hear it, but the less perspective you will have. So ideally, what you should do is get stuff out the week that it launches, within hours even, maybe, of the episode airing, so that people will just jump on it hot and fresh. However, you'll have the least perspective on everything as you go along. So the more perspective, the more insight you can lend this project, the less people will want to listen or watch. It's a double bind. Hmm, that could almost be a metaphor for the world at large. <laughs> Ergo, I suspect the best approach here will actually be waiting until this show is completed or cancelled before venturing back to take stock. So I don't know when that will be. Uh, the year 2026 still sounds like science fiction to me, but it could well be then, unless there's something we just have to talk about in the interim years. When they bring in Gollum and Chris hits the roof, <laughs> I need to hear him scream. Like, that doesn't make any sense. Gollum should be around for another 2,000 years. So yeah. we will reconnect somewhere down the road, and you can all say, you're right, Alex, you did tell us so when that does turn out to be the Witch King, that androgynous <laughs> Goza person. And we will reconnect somewhere down the road, which goes ever on and on. In the meantime, as always, I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And Namadia. The sun is fast falling beneath trees of stone. The lies in the tower, no longer my home. Past eyes of pale fire, black sand for my bed. I trade all I've known for the unknown ahead. Call to me, call to me, lands far away For I must now wander this wandering day Away I must wander this wandering day Of drink I have little and food I have less My strength tells me no but the path demands yes My legs are so short and the way is so long I've no rest nor comfort No comfort but song Sing to me, sing to me Day. At last comes 
Love.